flying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, skags. Wish I had a million dollars. Wish I had a million albums. Wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we love and it feels just like this. episode of The Debrief. We have an awful lot to talk about today. Of course, is as always the case, on the table for discussion is today's episode of Bad Faith. Many people are saying it's the best episode of a climate on a climate-related topic they've heard in a really long time because, guys, I know it's, it's pretty uh, dispiriting to talk about uh, the end of the world and how no one's doing anything about it. But this time I finally talked to some folks who were into some direct action, nonviolent direct action, but we had an interesting conversation about whether or not Property damage counts as nonviolence, and, you know, at least Peter was open to the idea of that. So I appreciated us finally having a conversation about what to do about the climate that is at all uh, relating to the scope of the problem ahead of us. We also talked very specifically about what climate activists are doing in this moment, including progressive ones we know and love. But who perhaps in their endorsement of Biden and generalized silence in this moment, applauding PBB and all of that stuff, have provided cover for him that isn't warranted. And then, of course, there is the news of the day, the subject of my my radar this morning. The fact that the so-called progressive Congressional Congress has chosen to endorse Chantel Brown over one of the most famous popular progressives in the country, Senator Nina Turner, and the race to win the seat in Ohio's 11th district. But first, let's orient folks who haven't listened to the main episode. I'm going to play uh, a new clip that I haven't posted as of yet, mostly because I'm exhausted from doing (laughs) rising and a little behind schedule on things today. But here's a clip from today's episode. And then, of course, the floor is open to you to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Here we go. What does the Biden administration do? First of all, they they basically didn't mention climate at all in the State of the Union, right? You could I could sort of tell like the speechwriters were probably like, you know, you probably should at least give it one mention, you know. And yeah, then so there's not an article about how they right, didn't mention it at all. At all, yeah. right? And so and now they're like begging to and you know, and even before the invasion of Ukraine, the Biden administration was begging OPEC to 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 expand, and they were you know they were approving more uh, drilling permits than Trump did, right? In in the same time frame, yep. so it's just one of the best moments we've ever had in history for for educating the public and making the case for getting off of fossil fuels and doing a wartime huge push for renewables, right? So the Biden administration should be totally using the bully pulpit to do that, to educate the public. And instead, they're using the bully pulpit to just expand the fossil fuel industry and enrich these already filthy rich sociopathic uh, fossil fuel CEOs. So, so 
they're using the bully pulpit to take us to accelerate us further into climate catastrophe, even though they campaigned somewhat on taking climate action. So that's what my op-ed was about a couple of weeks ago. And that's what that the daily episode was about yesterday. And that's also why we were protesting. Part of why I'm surprised to hear that the daily did an episode on it is because I think a common, you know, liberal attitude toward political critique is that if there's not, if they don't perceive there to be an alternative in the bipartisan landscape of the liberal mind, then there's literally no point in saying anything negative about Joe Biden because mm-hmm. the other side is always going to be worse. Right. Like that's, that's my observation. So that you can sneak in some critique during a primary season or something, some, you know, something when there's an alternative, but especially in like a midterm election year, when we're looking at probably a struggle bus for Biden down the line two years from now. I, I'm surprised not that they would, you know, that your article and the IPCC reports and all that thing, all that stuff wouldn't break through, but that it would break through and all, and actually come out as a sincere articulation of frustration with Joe Biden. All right. So I don't think I have to say anything to you to set up what happened uh, with Muna Turner. Um, I don't know. I'll take a couple questions and ask you if I should play a little bit of the clip from Rising this morning, uh, in which I kind of summarize it. But at the end of the day, those of you who've listened to Bad Faith Podcast know that this is not the first issue that we've had with Pamela Jayapal. I've been kind of keeping a an informal list as the evidence has mounted about uh, moments that she's had that have suggested she has forsaken progressive interests. Some of you are going to be listening to this and saying, well, of course, Brianna, we all knew. Yeah, I know. I know. Like I said, I've been keeping the list. But some some folks are less invested in maintaining a shred of credibility than I am. And I think it's important to actually have the evidence mounted before you start going around accusing people of things. And like I said on Rising this morning, for me, the final straw was really over the fight for 15. Because there was a credible, I mean, not really, but a vaguely credible argument that sure, you didn't want to push it over the force of vote moment uh, with Nancy Pelosi, that maybe you didn't think you could get enough out of her and kicking the bear, kicking the beehive and making her angry, LOL, kicking the mama bear and making her angry by not voting for her to be Speaker of the House might not have been worth it if you really felt like you could push the issue over something very substantive, like a $15 minimum wage. But when that moment came and the reporting came out that there were many progressives who were considering holding the line and declining to vote for the entire COVID package, which was a must-pass bill, you know, it was what's going to get the economy going. It was going to get the vaccines out. It was a must-pass bill. There were some progressives that were thinking about, up with, you know, withholding their vote for it unless it included the $15 minimum wage. And it was Pramila Jayapal who whipped them to not do that. For me, that was the final straw. For others, the final straw is going to be this instance with Mina Turner. And I also included a couple of other moments that have come up this year, including the kind of shade uh, Pramila threw at Rashida Tlaib that we covered on this podcast, uh, on Bad Faith Podcast, uh, when Rashida Tlaib gave a State of the Union speech response on behalf of the Working Families Party. And uh, Pramila Jayapal was very clear to say, oh, she doesn't, you know, she's not speaking for the Progressive Caucus. That's something else. I don't know her. She doesn't go here. Um, So let's open it up and hear from you. Cynthia, you're up first. What's on your mind? Hi, can you hear me? I can. Oh, God damn it. I really didn't want to go first. Um, (laughs) Anyway, hi, guys. I, okay, so I have an idea. So I have been having ideas. I've been getting ideas. So First of all, I really appreciate the the climate, the focus for this latest podcast, because 
I think that, I mean, and also kind of speaking to that spiritual conversation, if I'm going to go on some of my Oprah literature, I think it's important to be intentional now. And the fact that we have diagnosed the issue, you know, the fact that we have seen, um, like we've seen the actions, right? Like we've seen, we've seen the behavior, we've diagnosed the issue. So now we have to start asking, like, what do we do? What can we do? And I think that's also a much more empowering question to ask ourselves, like, what can we do? You know? Um, so that's kind of number one, but the number two is like, um, going along, I think Rose pointed this out too, during the podcast about like past movements and like what we can learn from past movements and how things actually, how progressive change actually happened. And I've been watching this, PBS documentary about like women's suffrage and how, you know, and it's funny because a lot of the same issues back then were happening back then that are happening today, like intra, you know, progressive, like conflicts and the way that people like the, the way that women thought like was the best um, strategy for how to get like a vote, like, should we go federal? Should we go state by state? Like Mm -hmm. a lot of the same, um, you know, issues were happening back then. But I think I just keep coming back to this, like, I don't know. I think, I mean, I, I also, I'm catching up to the last uh, podcast they had about electoralism. And I know that's a big question within the progressive movement, but it's like, I, I don't know. I, I really feel like direct action, protesting and getting out, like getting a mass group of people as much as we can to like, not only just go to fucking Washington or like wherever, you know, we decide to be and have and make demands but also to try and ask the question, again, the empowering question of like, where is our leverage? How can we use our leverage? And I'm thinking like, and again, I don't know the, the specific logistics of this. Like I'm not an organizer, so I, I can concede to certain critiques of like, well, that can't really work in this way. But um, I'm just asking the question of like, what if we withhold the vote? Like, what if we make a specific statement like, you know, maybe we have a progressive, like, let's say like Marianne or someone runs for president. Like, of course we would want to like back someone who would, you know, profess their ideas about a certain progressive agenda. But like if, when that person inevitably fails to win, you know, the democratic uh, nomination, like what if we said like, we're not, but like we all agreed on it and withheld yeah, the I mean, vote. That's, that's kind of what we've been talking about. Right. Um, that's what we've all all wanted Bernie or many of us wanted Bernie to do. And that's what we've been talking about in the context of the episodes that we did about what if there were a third party cha- challenger in 2024. And so mm-hmm. I think that's right on. And I think obviously part of the motivation for doing that and being able to, you know, risk it all as it were would be because the environment can't wait. And I agree right. with you that talking about direct action does seem to be a lot less dis- dispiriting than talking about, well, can we just convince Biden to do X, Y, and D because we have a different theory of power than the center. But I'm glad to hear that it resonated with you, Cynthia, and thank you for calling. Thanks. All right, Grace, you're up. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hey, I'm so excited about this episode. Um, I, and I feel like it's just like mirroring my personal life, which made me even more excited about it. Um, How so? Well, I've just been on a, I've just been in my community, just like basically trying to meet everybody I can and figure out who all the 
players in the game are. And as soon as I started doing it, like it, it all just started to fall into place really quickly. Like today I had lunch with a candidate for district attorney in my County. And I literally just sent her a message on Facebook and said, Hey, you know, I'm interested. <laughs> um, and then we hit it off and, um, I think I'm just finally figuring out how to build power, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, there is something really remarkable emotionally about getting off of the treadmill that the media has us on. I mean, one of the most, the clips, one of the include, uh, clips I included in the Rising um, segment this morning, I had played in an episode of the podcast from December uh, with Stephen Simler, and we were going through the failure of Build Back Better. And it seems like a little bit of a nothing clip. Rilla's not in it. It's uh, Lawrence O'Donnell and um, Rachel Maddow talking about how, oh, when they're really down and they feel like there's nothing left and there's no hope for the Democratic Party and Biden's agenda is dead, isn't it wonderful that Pramila Jayapal is there to come on and, and explain some technical detail that they missed that gives them hope for their future? And, of course, they never say specifically what they're talking about. There's no technical detail. She's basically just spinning, and they're unknow unknowingly talking about how much they enjoy the spin that allows them to continue to live in the delusion that something is happening and someone is fighting for us. But that is there's a certain emotional toll that I think we're all laboring under having to be gaslit all the time by the media sources that are spinning, 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 and the politicians that go on those media sources to spin, spin, spin. And there's something incredibly um, uh, uh, like cathartic about just cutting to the chase and, and having a theory of power and deciding, committing um, yourself and your, your freedom in some cases, talking about um, civil disobedience and getting arrested today on the podcast, to pursuing it. Right. And I and I think it is happening. Like to me at this point, the electoral system is only good to me in the sense that it's useful to me. And that doesn't even mean like that this person is necessarily going to win, but I can get my issue talked about. Mm. I can put I can put this like up more through these people and like our newspaper covers city council meetings. So if I go talk at a city council meeting, people see what's happening. It's, mm. it's like more serving a purpose mm. rather than like, I don't have actual faith that our like city council is going to start to do what they're supposed to do. Mm. Um, but I think being like, just kind of being a pain in their ass all the time and just like continuing to show up. And I've also started to interact with some older folks um, who I feel like are, you know, teaching me sort of older activist ways, I guess, like, they're like, let's write a letter to the editor. And that sounds ridiculous, you know, when we're all on social media, but then the effect of it, like I met these group of people who basically helped elevate um, all of our cops, like went on a stabbing of water bottle rampage in the summer of 2020. And a it ended up making of water bottle. What does that mean? Uh, um, they, there was like a medic tent um, downtown, you know, that was there to support people and the cops like raided it and it really was. And then they stabbed water bottles. Um, I don't to, I guess to empty them because they were saying water bottles were weapons. Um, yeah. I okay. mean, and so anyway, <laughs> police being police, but, uh, What happened to you? Grace, where'd you go? Can, can other people Oh, I thought it? that that was really, I thought that that was really cool. And it was just because of like them kind of using 
just actual person to person networking. I think we're relying too much on the internet. And then I ended up meeting these other folks and I'm going to, on Earth Day, I'm going to go protest um, them building a Raytheon facility in my town. So I, I, I really feel like, and I'm seeing it everywhere else too. Like I'm seeing other people building their power and that um, is amazing. I, it was, I, I don't know if you saw the, um, the Grand Rapids, the latest police execution is mm-hmm. awful. Yeah. Um, I have not, I, I, have do, I mean, I didn't watch, watch it. it. No, yeah. no. I don't watch I, I I don't watch the videos, but I watched the city council meeting um, and I watched like the community members showing up and like there was this theme throughout the whole thing, which is like basically like that the summer of 2020 like radicalized them, you know, like people didn't co- go in there thinking um, I mean, I don't think I started that way. I think I started with reform. You know, we can't have police doing this anymore. And then I'm like, oh my God, this is who you are. Mm-hmm. You've got to, you've got to go now. So t- t- two things on that. I saw some people commenting about the difference in reaction between that and obviously what happened in the summer of 2020, and what you know we could attribute to that. I think it was um, T from Champagne Sharks was basically like, yeah, because the leaders of the so-called leaders of the movement. We're so effective at co-opting all that energy and funneling it into these events with Ugg boots and the electric slide boogie woogie dance party or whatever the hell, you know, um, uh, Campbell, the guy, Sean Campbell, the guy who wrote the article about the misuse of all the BLM funds, or at least the lack of transparency on all the BLM funds, uh, was talking about. But it also is really especially galling when you consider that the media cycle that's happening right now with the BLM founders, at least Patrice Cullors, as they're giving interviews about the house. And I would almost forgive her somewhat the indiscretions and the bad optics around the house if she were using the moment where everyone wants to talk to her about that to at least redirect attention to these things that are happening on the ground. You know what I mean? And, yeah, and but it, so, yeah, go ahead. Uh, it's just, but it's not, she's not a leader of it. I mean, and, and that's, I think that that's the thing. I mean, I don't, like, yeah, of course, of course. But the reality is that she's been giving all these being given right now because of her own personal scandals, all of this attention and this platform. And it is just doubling down on the reality of her not being a legitimate um, conduit for the energy that should be, I think it is organically happening. It's still there, but doesn't really um, have a place to go when she does not, in fact, perform her role. You know, she doesn't have to be reinvented in whole cloth. She's already been put on this pedestal and been characterized as being a person in this leadership role and she's still not doing it and all i'm saying is that i'm doubly dispirited in this moment to see her in the news when all of this is going on and for her not to be talking about that yeah definitely um but i mean i think that's why like just in general i there was a sense from the beginning of like this is why we don't have leaders right like this is that's that system that is. I a... tell you though, I don't love that. I, we've talked about this in the podcast before. <laughs> Sometimes I think the le- movement shouldn't have leader stuff is like op shit, because at the end of the day, we all want like Bernie, whatever you want to call him, he disavowed the idea of being a leader. But having someone that had a broad enough kind of appeal that people were willing to sublimate their individual disagreements and all of the people that we now are fighting with constantly all felt like comrades under the umbrella of Bernie. You can't tell me that didn't have utility. You can't tell me that didn't have utility. And we're all sitting around here talking kind of breathlessly about 
will someone run in 2024? In part because I think there is some hope that someone could emerge that could help reorganize the left. I'm not saying it's absolutely necessary. I'm not saying it should be one leader, but I don't know that I buy into the idea that the existence of a leader in and as, in a, is in and of itself toxic. The problem was these three internet people who never, from the beginning, never had any relationship to what was happening on the ground. And from the beginning, I also throw DeRay in there, from the beginning were criticized by organizers uh, as interlopers. You know, they were problematic because they were problematic, not because of the idea conceptually of them being a leader. I think it's two things, though. I think one, you know, I, I mean, I think there are leaders in everything that I'm involved in. There are people who are le who are leading, but I think it's more about a power dynamic, first of all. And secondly, they'll kill anybody who um, I mean, and, and that's what happened. Right. But is that a reason to say, well, we shouldn't have had Martin Luther King or Malcolm X because they'll kill them. We would have been better off if those men hadn't existed. Um, I think that you put you put a lot of um, a lot of eggs in one basket so that when one person is murdered, that destroys a huge swath of a movement. But that is pretend that's acting as though there was a choice to say, oh, let's crown Martin Luther King Jr. and hold him up. No, it happened because people were inspired by him. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so I definitely I mean, there's almost I'm not saying talking not about it because it either happens or it doesn't happen. It's not something that is is created unless it's one of these op type people. <laughs> I shouldn't do that. But it's one of these kind of um, media figures like the uh, BLM women. And I, I don't mean that even necessarily derisively, but they were a creation of the Internet the ha and the hashtag. Right. Um, I, I'm just saying like a leader's going to happen or it's not going to happen. There's nothing anybody can do about it, but I'm not going to be inherently suspicious of an, of the idea of someone that people are rallying around just because they may or may not get killed someday or because I think that it makes the, the movement vulnerable. They are effective. That's why they're getting killed. Right? So what am I going to do? Thumb my nose at that efficacy while it yeah, lasts? I'm not saying that I don't think that people can have leadership, but I don't think that you want to put it. All, well, I mean, even I mean, even when Martin Luther King was alive, you know, I mean, the FBI, like they were using his personal life as part of their, you know, their whole game against him. I mean, and so I think it's more like the the distribution. You have to be ready that if one person I mean, it's just like any organization, you know, like you you can't have one person go away and that topple the whole thing. And that's, I think what I mean by like not having leaders as in like, it's not all pinned on this one hierarchy with this one person at the center, because that's the problem with Bernie. That's the problem. Like, that's why we are where we are now. Right. Bernie goes away. And then like, how, where's the, where's the infrastructure there? All that work, all that thing that was, you know, all that was built there. What happened to that? Well, that's an issue of Bernie not continuing the infrastructure, right? But this, I'm just saying, without Bernie, Bernie the leader, we're, we're, <laughs> but without Bernie, then we're, were we? I'm not, I'm not trying to sound like a Bernie simp. I'm just trying to really work this through. <laughs> Bernie never exists. We're not here having this conversation. I'm an anonymous person on the internet, and we're all just sitting here begging Biden to do something. You, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I'm just not. Like, I understand. There's a, a narrative that says leaders are bad, and I've said that, and I've parroted that, and I'm just trying to interrogate it a little because. Honestly, sometimes people are so intense with that argument. I don't think leaders are bad. It almost feels like suspicious that that your your people are antagonistic against about the people who were so so threatening that ultimately they were literally killed by the state.
or derailed yeah. in the way that Bernie was derailed. Do you know what I mean? Or or co-opted or whatever happened ultimately, who knows? You know. I guess you know. what I'm saying is that but also that like we're all leaders. <laughs> I mean, and that we all like we have an immense amount of power compared to what we I think we think we do. And um and I feel like I'm finally seeing it all come back around, I guess, maybe after feeling mm-hmm. very very disheartened and just realizing like that so you know you feel like all of this momentum was lost but really it's not lost it's just going in a different direction and they were talking about like diversity of tactics on the show Mm -hmm. and I mean I think that that's the key and as much as we're like well what do we do just showing up and working with other people in your community like that alone is power and I like I, I just really um and I think I feel like Chris Hedges was also kind of talking about you know the value and just in the beauty in just that and the spiritual element I really got to me too I know I don't ascribe to any spiritual but you know any spirituality so to speak but um but I've actually been thinking about it that that's something I'm like lacking in my life Mm. um like that kind of element of my life and like what would that look like for me but none of it seems to fit and I'm like oh well maybe it's right in front of me maybe it's just people maybe it's just community yeah Um, I was thinking about that today as I am dog tired and thinking about how I finally you know doing the hill this week feels like a real job (laughs) like a nine to five kind of well not nine to five you know six six to (laughs) twelve situation that I I don't understand that hour I don't understand that hour either I gotta be honest (laughs) and I was thinking about how oh I'm actually talking to people and interacting with all these people and I kind of got overload you know from just interacting with like 20 people in the studio and I realized how isolated that I have been over the course of the past two years and that maybe this is a good wake-up call for me to to have that experience and how much more I think the and how much more spiritual the experience of doing that kind of uh, direct action work would feel to me because of my isolation I don't know I guess I'm saying I think I made me made it more poignant for me because I'm having I'm experiencing such a deficit of it in particular because of COVID in the world and the reality of being a podcaster. Yeah, I uh, think everybody's you. at a different stage with that. But yeah, it's a big transition for sure. I appreciate you, Grace. <laughs> yeah, Thank I appreciate you. Thank you so much for calling you. in as always. Thanks. You're Jim. <laughs> All right. Um, David, I want, I'm going to take you, but first I got to confess my dinner was supposed to arrive right before I started this call and arrived right after. So I'm going to play a brief clip from rising and while I pick it up and then I'm going to continue to take questions. It's just going to take a minute. I apologize. I'm going to skip ahead because I presume a lot of you have kind of watched the first two minutes or so that are on YouTube. Um, and I'm going to skip past the bit that's kind of like me rehashing for us to vote. Cause I think that everybody is probably pretty tired of me talking about that. Um, but here we go. I'll be right back. It's clear why so many progressives are considering cutting the cord with the Democratic Party altogether. Now, progressives first became skeptical of Jayapal back in January, January of last year, when some voters and media figures, including myself, were pushing for progressives in the House to withhold their vote for Nancy Pelosi to be Speaker of the House in order to gain some, any concessions for the left. 
Because of the narrow margins in the House, any six or so progressives had the power to hold up Pelosi's nomination for Speaker in exchange for concessions like, say, better committee appointments, ending PAYGO, ousting Richie Neal, a Medicare for All opponent from the Ways and Means Committee, or having a hearing on Medicare for All, a crucial issue at the time when the pandemic was raging and no vaccine was yet available. When asked... Jayapal explained away her decision not to exploit one of the last remaining leverage points for the left by saying that she would not force the vote because she feared that Republican minority leader Kevin McCarthy might become Speaker of the House if she did. Of course, that wouldn't be possible unless a significant number of Democrats were to vote for Republican McCarthy, an extremely unlikely outcome. Even if progressives abstained from voting for Pelosi and McCarthy got more votes, absolutely, he would not become Speaker of the House unless he got more than half of the total votes in the House, not just a bare majority. So Jayapal is either ignorant to the point of concern about House procedure or she lied. And neither is an especially reassuring outcome. Strike two for Jayapal centered around the fight for a $15 minimum wage. Remember that a minimum wage raise was initially included as part of the 2021 COVID relief bill. At that time, it was reported that some progressives considered holding up the entire COVID package unless a $15 minimum wage was included in the bill. In an interview with Ryan Grimm on his podcast, Intercepted, Jayapal revealed that progressives had successfully threatened to do something similar to ensure extended unemployment benefits were in the bill. And it worked. But when it came to the fight for 15, an enormously popular policy, well, Jayapal threw that fight. After the $15 minimum wage was stripped from the bill, it was reported that, quote, when a $15 minimum wage increase fell out of the package because of Senate rules, some Democrats considered withholding their votes entirely. Jayapal helped persuade those members to support the deal without the minimum wage raise. A two brute. Since then, Jayapal has been one of Biden's biggest boosters. Instead of using her position to drive home the extent to which Biden has betrayed his fairly moderate campaign promises, she described him thusly last summer, shortly after the $15 minimum wage debacle. President Biden has risen to the moment, she said, and I really do give him an A in what he's done so far. It's been bold. It's been progressive. It's been what the country needs. Polls disagree. Here's more evidence. When progressive squad member Rashida Tlaib made a speech on behalf of the Working Families Party following the State of the Union address this year, Jayapal seemed almost miffed that she'd stepped out of line. Here she is speaking to Mehdi Hassan. I just want people to understand the Progressive Caucus doesn't give a uh, a response to the president. We will all be out there talking about what we thought. And I believe that the president's going to raise some really important progressive priorities. Big she doesn't speak for me energy here. So much for progressive unity. Moreover, whereas some progressives like AOC warned Democrats that separating Biden's traditional infrastructure bill from the human infrastructure bill, Build Back Better, was a mistake, Jayapal went through with the plan and even said later that she had, quote, no regrets about doing so. That was the moment Biden's agenda died, and Jayapal had no regrets about it. Everyone with eyes could see that Manchin was lying when he said he'd support the human infrastructure bill if only they passed the traditional bill first. It was a Lucy, Charlie Brown in the football moment as obvious as the nose on my face, but Jayapal pursued that agenda-killing strategy with impunity and apparently without regret. Now, I'm not the only one who has noticed this pattern of Jayapal playing cleanup for corporate Democrats. Just listen to Rachel Maddow and Lawrence O'Donnell unironically applaud her ability to spin political guano into gold. And then 
the your show's optimist in chief, <laughs> Carson Jayapal, actually presents an optimistic view of what's next. She actually does it, and it's real. I listen to it. I sit there with all my experience trying to tear it apart, and and no, it's real. It's legitimate, um, and. I gotta say, she's she's brilliant at it uh, diplomatically uh, in her presentation of it, uh, but it's just my favorite thing to watch <laughs> to watch those words of optimism <laughs> just washing over you, and you just you know making them you know let them get into your heart and go on with life that way. It is it is like a recurring bit on this yep. show. You're completely right that I bring yep. Congresswoman Jayapal on and I say, looks to me like nothing can happen. <laughs> looks to me like it's all over. Whew, this was a dark one. And she's every single time I hear Hugh Rachel, but actually, and then she's mm -hmm. got something to say that is not pie in the sky and is not some made no. up thing and is not like they'll be better. Ugh, I can't bear it. I cannot. I cannot. I cannot. They're being completely serious. They don't, they don't hear themselves at all. They literally, they're literally talking about the fact that she comes on the show. She's able to pull them from the brink of understanding truthfully that there's nowhere left for Biden's agenda to go. This was December 27th, by the way. So imagine a bunch of people who purport to be brain geniuses. Lawrence O'Donnell talks about how in all his experiences, he, he can't find a hole in Jayapal's argument. Rachel Maddow is like a Rhodes Scholar. Everybody loves and respects her intellect so easily being fooled and having the substance-free conversation that at no point indicates what it is that Pramila Jayapal said that gave credible hope for the future of Biden's agenda. And here we are, you know, damn near six months later with Bupkis to show for it. And it's just, it's just, it makes me insane. Like this clip when we played it in December was bad, but revisiting it for the purposes of pulling stuff arising made my blood boil. Okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. David, David. David, let's hear from you. Okay, can you hear me this time? I can. Oh, thank God! All right, I figured out what goes wrong with the app, uh, with the Android version of the app. Okay, I'm so glad. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. <laughs> but you, you're right. Um, this this is infuriating, and this is going to keep happening. Unfortunately, I I really. I really think that people need to start grappling with the fact that our electoral system as a whole is broken and not just the electoral system, but the governmental system because of that. Uh, and, and that's not to be despondent, but that's just to, because once you do realize that you can start moving on other methods and trying to reform the system itself. Yeah, I don't find it to be like generating despondency. I, I'm with um, Grace and Cynthia that, frankly, it's it's a relief to get off the hamster wheel. No pun intended, yeah. David the hamster. <laughs> oh, they, they are guinea pigs, by the way. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I did find the species there, my friend. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, but it is exhausting and it's intentionally exhausting. Um, and I, I don't want to impugn um, the intentions so much of, of certain people in Congress, like members of the squad. Cause I don't know um, what their intentions were originally or if they changed. And also I understand the realities of our political system and the pressures. And essentially if they're not playing ball, they're going to get drummed out anyway. 
and how that can be a seductive, you know, lure on its own. But it also says to me that's why change from the inside isn't going to work. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt. Oh, yeah, I was just going to, again, pitch my, my thing that we have to block up business. <laughs> Anything that we got a problem with, mm-hmm. we got to stop the commerce around it. That's yeah, the I only think that's, way that I think that's right. Attention. I think yeah. that's right. Well, thank you for that, uh, David. I appreciate you calling in. No problem. Thank you. All right, Thomas, what's on your mind? Hi. Um, I guess this is more on the um, environmental question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a question that the left needs to ask itself is, are these issues, not just the environment, but others that we care about, endemic to capitalism? And secondarily, can they be resolved in a way that we find satisfactory within capitalism? I think the answer is no. I mean, we had Kate Aronoff on the show probably about a year ago and her, you know, she's an environmental reporter and her whole book is about how we're not going to get to the place we need to be to save the planet under capitalism. And I don't know entirely what to do with that. And that's why it's been such a frustrating year to talk about IPCC reports and environmental coverage, because none of the solutions presented were attacking that fundamental issue. And I think in some ways, because of the Russia-Ukraine crisis and the reality of how the war is ratcheting up um, the environmental catastrophe, we all know that, you know, military is the biggest polluter and all those kinds of stats. And we all kind of laughed and rolled our eyes at the idea of, um, Elizabeth Warren's kind of green new military or whatever it was, you know, seeing even the pretext of, uh, or the pretense of Joe Biden doing some marginal things for the environment, I think really blew the lid off of the whole ruse. And I don't know how you, you know, how able he and the Democrats will be to, you know, how, how, uh, how easy it will be to rally people to the polls the way, you know, Noam Chomsky did in that conversation that we now infamously had when it's clear that Joe Biden isn't willing to even do the bare minimum when he's bragging in his state of the union address, as we clipped in the episode about increasing oil production, because he's able to frame it as a, as a, like a military necessity and as a public good for people who are in fact paying high gas prices while they labor under a minimum wage rate from 2009. Yeah. Um, I actually think minimum wage is a good example of how attempting these reforms under capitalism don't lead to satisfactory results. Um, so I, I grew up in Florida, mm. which uh, passed a state uh, referendum to uh, have a $15 minimum wage. You know, mm-hmm. over time, it'll progressively raise up to that. Which, okay, yeah, good. But basically, that's all been wiped out by inflation, mm-hmm. Right. Whenever that $15 comes around, it's going to be like nothing, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that's, if anything, these issues sort of point more and more towards the necessity of a proletarian party for socialism, right? Which is traditionally the vehicle through which, you know, capitalism can be challenged. Um, You think think it's going to happen through... uh, a party structure, an electoral structure where there's a socialist party that fights. Oh, no, 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 not, not that. I mean, I think the party structure is necessary as like an, as an organizing structure. Um, 
and there will be, I mean, you would tactically decide whether you want to run candidates or not. But I think ultimately, as the party becomes more powerful and their alignment with workers becomes closer and closer, like historically, what you're likely to see is increasing despotism from the capitalist parties, right? Yeah, and then, I mean, the, the problem is that they're very good at keeping people just happy enough. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I think also the left has not been up to the task, right? We haven't been doing our jobs well enough. Um, and I don't just mean, you know, us, uh, but like for the last, I don't know, 100 years, um, you know, since like after Debs in America, at least, um, we haven't been pressing the question well enough. Uh, we haven't what been. Do you mean by that? Well, for instance, We've basically sensed that like 30s left in America, we've sort of deviated. For instance, like the 60s left, they basically said, okay, instead of the workers being the, you know, revolutionary vanguard, um, actually it's going to be insert your group here, students, uh, black people, uh, it's going to be whoever the most oppressed person is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? We've sort of been trying out all these different things. Uh, maybe Democratic Party entryism, um, which we see from like the Shackmanites now to DSA. Uh, and we sort of, I think, need to get back to that like classic style that at least produced like some real significant results. Um, I, I feel like this is bordering on one of these... Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't know. This is boarding one of those, you know, arguments that the real issue is that we're talking too much about people's identities. Is that what you're saying? Uh, not exactly. I mean, I don't, I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's uh, just like as an approach, it's, it's not that necessarily. Um, I mean, I think, I think it's getting back to an actual, Marxist approach, which I don't think we've had in any way. And that's, yeah, sure, some identity politics stuff or whatever is not really a, you know, Marxist approach, but neither is the sort of uh, what I think is the most predominant strain now on the left, which is sort of a Bonapartist, we need the state to give us more stuff uh, approach. So I think is also a big problem on the left, right? Because again, if we agree that these problems can't be solved through capitalism. Asking the state to give us more things under capitalism is not going to solve the problem. I got to say, I kind of feel like this is why sometimes we shouldn't read. Because, <laughs> <laughs> Thomas, I swear to God, I'm thinking about how Chris Smalls was able to connect on a personal level with all those people at that Amazon plant and convince them that they had a shared communal interest. And I can't imagine what he would have what would have happened if he said, well, I think the real problem is that we talk too much about the fact that we have racial identities. And I'm not saying that you're saying that explicitly, but I think I think the real thing we got to do is really, you know, folk, you know, let go of this Bonapartist approach and really figure out how to do some real down home good you know, Debsian Marxist solidarity. Do, do, do you hear what I'm saying? I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying that if I were going to identify a problem with the left, it would be that it's too much of like this 
And not enough of what kind of Grace and Cynthia were talking about, just connecting with the communities, meeting with people, talking to people, getting a feel of what people's needs are, engaging them, earning their trust. I think it's, sometimes it's just too much theory. And, like, people are just sitting around the Internet talking about theory. I don't know what to do with that. Do you I, know what I mean? I, yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, I think I would certainly endorse the idea of, like, like trying to assist worker organization, you know, mm-hmm. like Chris Malls, as much as possible. Mm-hmm. I think that's like, hands down, definitely got to be a thing that you're doing. But I also think that I think that there's actually like a little bit of a papering over of differences on the left in a, in a weird way where like, for instance, like people that I that are like major Jacobin slash DSA figures or whatever, like won't really discuss what their like theoretical assumptions are. In any way, they sort of refuse to engage in that conversation. Um, what do you mean so, by their theoretical presumptions are assumptions? Well, for instance, like, um, for instance, like DSA Jacobins, like, like very hard anti-revolutionary socialism, right? Mm-hmm. Or their concept, the conception of what even is socialism, right? Mm-hmm. Is socialism what's going on in Scandinavia right now? I mean, I would argue no, uh, mm-hmm. but I think that's, we have to know, like, what do people actually think? Um, and I think that, I think there are basically two parts to this, right? You're organizing the workers. And at the same time, there needs to be a real, like, intellectual, like, debate in the left, like a real open, you know, not hostile debate. And at you know, obviously, this is, this is, this is interesting. Of different opinions. This dovetails with Grace's Grace's points because what is the purpose of having this intellectual? So, so let's say we have this debate on the left in DSA and socialist alternative talk, and there's a, a public discussion of whether or not one group or the other's approach is better, and maybe there's a realignment where a bunch of DSA people go over to socialist alternative, or maybe socialist alternative disappears because they all realize they were really wrong and should have all just been in DSA. Or maybe there's just two groups that are pursuing alternative paths from each other. Like, what does that do? Because it goes back to this idea of grace, where I would agree with grace about the leadership point, is I do think that there is this effort to kind of construct leaders and come up with theories as though there's anyone who's going to listen to them outside of these little niche organizations. You know what I mean? Like, what I like about social alternatives, they have a theory of the case. They're not looking for validation for their theory of the case. They're just putting it into practice. Do you know what I mean? And I don't sure. know, like, I, 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 I would love for DSA personally, because of my political orientation, to listen to socialist alternative and be influenced by socialist alternative and be willing to take the political approach and the more adversarial approach that socialist alternative takes. But I don't know that I am looking to DSA for leadership. I don't know that I'm looking for DSA to bring the revolution because it is a lot of people, you know, who went to Oberlin, no offense, you know, kind <laughs> no, of waxing philosophical about all this stuff, you know? I, I, I'm not looking at DSA to bring the revolution either. That's for And sure. Oberlin's great. Like, don't come for me, Oberlin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do think they, you know, they have a, a, an outsized influence, right? You know, I would say that. On whom? On, like, really, on let's left, drill down on that. Yeah. I mean, uh, who, who does DSA have, influence? What, like, sorry? Who, who does DSA influence? They don't influence the squad members, that's for sure. The oh, tail is no, wagging no, no. the dog. No, no, they influence their members. Uh, the leadership in DSA influences their members. I don't think they influence the uh, electeds at all. Uh, okay, 
So DSA yeah. has how many people now in it? I'm trying to find it out real quick. They lost a bunch of people recently. Their peak was like a hundred. Oh, I wonder 000. why that was. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, look, they've clearly failed, and I think that's why people are becoming uh, are leaving and becoming disgruntled with them, which is good. I'm seeing 94,000, the internet says. I would like to say for the record that I'm still a dues-paying member of the DSA, so nobody can come for me over that either. Uh, well, they, they uh, the way that they remove people from the roles when they stop paying, it kind of takes a very long time for them to come off the membership list. So sometimes <laughs> those numbers might be a little higher than what... Mm. And also who actually goes to meetings and stuff. Um, but yeah. Yeah. But but like, let's say, that's still, that's that's not a... Like it's not an insignificant number of people. It's not an insignificant number of people, but when you're asking, you know, if we're if we're, if we're saying that a group is influential <laughs> um, a, a, as a progressive influencer, and we're talking about the DSA only because it has a hundred thousand, you know, fewer than a hundred thousand people, I can come up with, you know, the Girl Scouts probably has at least a hundred thousand people in it. Any given sorority has more than a hundred thousand people in it. Like, should we be trying to infiltrate the AKAs? And try to figure out how to flip them to influence the revolution. You know, like that, that's all I'm saying. Oh, yeah, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not trying to diminish the the DSA. I'm just saying I don't know that I personally have any energy to invest in getting the DSA's ducks in a row and having them work through philosophical questions about their mission and origin and, and, and purpose because yeah, I, I just don't know that that's how – where I see action happening at this point. No, no. I, I mean like I certainly don't think it's worthwhile to like infiltrate the DSA or something. I mean – if you're going to infiltrate anywhere is like go to a workplace and start a union. Uh, or if you're a lefty, go to the military because we might need you at some point. Uh, uh, if you know, long ways in the future. But, um, but I do think that like we need to at least present some sort of alternative, present some sort of different, uh, a different theory of the case to DSA. Right. Because they are where a lot of people go to start their like, you know, socialist lefty thing. Right. Mm, who was a lot of people? Again, I'm back to this Oberlin point. Like, I'm really not trying to be an asshole, sure. but I, 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 I'm if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I was I joined DSA because I'm an Oberlin asshole who <laughs> wanted to feel like I was doing something when I got really amped and excited about all of the 2018 victories. I don't know that those are the same thoughts and feelings that are being held by your average person who Christian Small was, was able to organize. Right. And but, I'm not sure. Yeah, go ahead. But, but if we're to have a party, right? I mean, I think traditionally you have both a party and like worker or labor organization. And then the two meet at some point and sort of integrate. Right. Yeah, but the, if party the party is usually consists at the beginning of intellectuals. I, no, mm. that is how it usually starts. That is how the bull. That is a. That's how, like. I, I don't the mind an intellect. There are a lot of intellectuals, and a lot of them didn't go to Oberlin. I really am. Sure, yeah, yeah, Oberlin. yeah. But they're like Bernie. I'm sorry to bring, go back to him, but he's all we've really got in this contemporary context. He actually went. People act like he rolled off of a train somewhere. I mean, University of Chicago is the fifth best school in the country, or whatever. I don't know what it was in 1960 or whatever. Mm, yeah. But it's certainly no slouch. But people, he didn't present like an Oberlin kid. 
That's sure, the point. Sure. I'm not. I'm not literally. I'm not being doing the conservative thing, or it's like, oh, if you have a degree, you can't be authentic. Or even sometimes, you know, Batya Angarsargan sometimes talks about degreed people in this way. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about how you present and how you relate to the world. I've never heard Bernie. I'm sure Bernie knows all the theory and he read all the books in the '60s. Oh, he did. But, yeah, he did. But I've never heard him say any kind of jargony nonsense in my entire life, publicly. Oh, yeah, but- but again, I'm not advocating for like when organizing with workers or trying to get them to join you to be like, oh, uh, you know, to throw out like all this jargon. That would be fruitless. Uh, but it doesn't mean that there doesn't have to be a, a theory behind the party, right? And like there can be disagreements about the theory. It can be somewhat inclusive to a certain extent of whatever, right? Do we have anarchists in there or not, et cetera? Okay, okay, here's, but, a, here's what I want to say. And real, then yeah. I, I, here's what I'll respond, and then I, I got to move on, Thomas. I really appreciate yeah. you dialoguing with me and, and being willing to go back and forth. Of course. I, I, what I see, and I am nobody's organizer or nobody's anything, okay? I came to this in only in the past few years. I admit all of my ignorance. But I see the following I see tabling events. I see sometimes organized rallies. Sometimes I attend those rallies. Sometimes I even speak at those rallies. I support all of those events. When I was at the last one, the student debt rally last Monday or Monday before last, whenever, in uh, D.C., we were walking around the Department of Education. I said to Afini, it would be really nice. I know that we got to do a couple of these laps because it's some movement principle that if the rally is moving, then we're more effective and all this. Like, great. It would be lovely if then they gave us some sheets of paper with addresses on them and we split into a few groups and went to a low-income neighborhood, went to a a neighborhood that's likely to have a lot of people with some debt, knocked on doors and talked to them because there are all these people assembled on this Monday and we are so attenuated from anybody who actually needs to know about this existing. There was no media. There was no press, hardly any. And there were no squad members that showed up despite us being right down there near the Capitol. That might have brought media attention. And I was thinking to myself, like, strategically, how to make the most of all of these people. Well, you can't get media attention. The very least you can do is instead of doing a few more laps around this block, walk our tuchuses over to somebody's door and knock and have a conversation. Maybe have this event not at the Department of Education, which is a ghost town on the side of a highway, but go and have it in some populated place where people can see that there are real people who are affected by student debt, go have it at Eastern market or someplace where people are shopping and talking. So all these compelling speakers who are talking about having to pay one, one person was a previously incarcerated and was talking about having to pay restitution at the same time they were paying their student debt balance balances back. Right. These incredible stories and all only person who got to hear them was those of us who were already convinced. All I'm saying saying is I think the mentality, there's a mentality that comes from, and it's not like a personal attack or, you know, I don't like, this is not a moral judgment. There's a certain mentality that is naturally going to come out of a certain kind of social class and political backgrounds, organizing background even. And it is, you know, not necessarily what someone like Christian Smalls would do. It is not necessarily what's effective. And I have a little bit of skepticism of the idea that like there's going to be this top-down approach where all of the big heads are going to sit around and read Ben Burgess's book and figure out a plan. And then we're going to go and take it to the people. And at that point, with all of our, you know, Everlane shirts on, not start knocking on the doors at trailer parks and such. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. I, no, no. I, I, 
think I pretty much agree with almost everything you said. Um, mm. The only thing I would say is, look, at some point, hopefully, if Chris Malls is very successful, the union is the, or of these, like, group of unions that are going to be put together, like, there's going to need to be more than that, right? There needs to be a party organization for them to be a part of. Yeah, I agree with that. Through, right? I agree with that. And, and, yeah. and when we're talking about vote withholding, you know, Cynthia's first point, part of the issue, I think, is people do want to feel like they're putting their vote somewhere in the alternative and not just not voting because otherwise that feels like apathy mm-hmm. and it's read politically as apathy. Yeah. Uh, look, all, the last thing I'll say, because I know I've taken up too much time, but I think we can look at, you know, for those of us who maybe are more intellectually inclined or something, we can look at the examples of Lenin and Trotsky, right? Oh, sorry. That Oop. was the wrong button. My bad. <laughs> I actually meant to hit you with one of these. <laughs> I'm sorry, Thomas. Go ahead. No, it's all right. Uh, but I think we can look at the examples of, of Lenin and Trotsky uh, who were intellectuals and were constantly writing, you know, about theory and theoretical disagreements they had with other people and thought it was very important. Well, at the same time, they were very good organizers who can relate to people, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think you have to be able to do both. Um, oh, by the way, I forgot to say, um, your old roommate, Devin, says hello. What? You know Devin? Yeah. 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 Uh, oh, that's he's... terrific. Yeah. She's still in New York? Yeah, she is. Yeah. Okay, I'm never in New York anymore. I was going to say, I'll holler at her when I'm back home, but I have no reason to be home. But I am in Philadelphia sometimes, so she should holler at – she should let me know if she's back in uh, the small spiritually named town she's from in Pennsylvania. (laughs) Uh, It's good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you, Thomas. All right. Thank you. Um, Clifford, you're up next. Unmute yourself and hit us with your wisdom. Hi, Brianna. I really just want to express uh, thanks. Can you hear me all right? My phone I, might die. I, I can. Like... You sound great. Okay. Um, but I just really wanted to express thanks because I um, I so enjoyed this episode. This was like a dream come true to hear this episode, to have oh. like talked about um, of disruption and like and really have the whole focus be on disruption. I hope everyone who's on this call in goes and checks out the episode because it really is like some actual hopeful stuff. I've definitely gotten to a point where I feel like, you know, that Medicare for all thing I was doing in Maine with the petitions that Mm -hmm. fell through Um, the donors who were the people who like the board basically of the campaign decided that us field workers should stop because they didn't think they basically pulled their funding because they thought we weren't going to make it in time. And uh, yeah, so that's, but I honestly, from the very beginning, I assumed it wouldn't succeed to be honest. And I, I just have this feeling because even if that succeeded, it would have gone to the people of Maine, they would have voted on it, blah, blah, blah. Then maybe the legislative branch would have crafted something that would have been good. But I tend to doubt it because everything's so corrupted at every level And that's why I think, as opposed to the last caller, I really think the beautiful thing about disruption is it's like it's you it's not about a bunch of talking about things. It's about like shutting down the profits of the one percent. I love that 
Peter and these scientists are going to banks, you know, they're mm -hmm. obstructing banks. A lot of the backlash, that interview you played a clip from, a lot of the backlash is a lot of Extinction Rebellion's tactics have to do with major thoroughfares and stuff like that. And uh, mm -hmm. so then everyday people sometimes pay the price and that draws ire, but it also draws publicity. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, you know, get, it's a double-edged sword, I guess, mm -hmm. but I really think like, everyone roots for the people who are blockading like a private jet terminal mm -hmm. you know what i mean so it's like i think uh i think that's i just hope that you um if this i when you you said something earlier about like hopping off the fair uh, of the hamster wheel or something and i kind of like that's how i kind of felt like you like we weren't talking about electoralism we're just talking about like we're actually gonna do things we're going to mm -hmm. uh change things and that's so refreshing and i really hope uh i would i would be so encouraged i guess is all i can say if if there's future episodes with extinction rebellion and with like maybe some like concrete uh because i know even peter and i'm um, i'm sorry rose, rose. Mm -hmm. yep yep even they were were kind of disinclined to really get into the nitty-gritty but i i think like strategies and having a myriad of strategies be really sussed out and you do such a great job of of pushing on things and really getting to the core of the strategy. So that would be so helpful to disseminate and just have episodes where I could be like, man, there's like five or six different ideas I've got to go, you know, honestly to get arrested doing different things, you know? So like, um, I think we're there. I really do. Like in, in yeah, everything. Let's get arrested, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think, um, I think their issue, I mean, like, you know, Peter's been on the, the podcast before. It's not a mystery where he works. You can Google it. Uh, right. But, you know, they both – they I think they've both gotten a bit of a talking to, and they know they're on a bit of a thin line professionally if they are publicly talking about doing things that even if they are nonviolent and I think morally um, necessary, illegal, <laughs> you know, trespassing, you know, those those kinds of things – and so that's that's why they were a little bit. I think off the, an off the record conversation with them would be very different than an on the record conversation with them. But you know me, I don't have a job. <laughs> I'm self employed. So uh, unless they want to ban me from YouTube or Colin or something, uh, we can talk about it. And I'm glad you enjoyed it. And we'll have more episodes like that because I felt really invigorated by it as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. I would just say that maybe people speaking from a historic standpoint would mm. be um, people who could evaluate it. And it wouldn't be saying like, oh, this is necessarily what you should get up to. But they could say, well, here's been the most effective uh, tactics in the past, you know, or something like, like the that. OJ Simpson, if I did it version of climate <laughs> activism. <laughs> sure. Oh, and that's uh, that's uh, that's the other thing is that um, this kind of activism really could apply to every single issue because it's critically the populace versus the one percent on healthcare, mm -hmm. at least in this country on healthcare, on climate. You know all this stuff, but I just think every topic could have this kind of application for disruption. So uh, yeah, super encouraging. Thank you so much. Thank you, Clifford. Take care, Sylvester. What's happening, my friend? Uh, Want to unmute yourself? Are we having technical issues? Sylvester, if you get back in the line, I'll bring you back up. Oh, there you go. Sylvester, I see you unmuted yourself, but I still can't hear you. Okay, if you get back in the line, I'll bring you back up. It might be that technical issue that sometimes happens. Uh, Abby, what's on your mind? 
unmute yourself using the little mic icon in the bottom right hand corner. Abby, can you unmute yourself? Going once, going twice. Hi, can you hear me? I can. How are you doing, Abby? Sorry about that. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. What's on your mind tonight? Yeah, two quick things. I don't want to take up too much time because I'm I'm more of a listener than a caller. Um, but number one, while we're on the subject of climate stuff, I would like to recommend to everybody who's listening, if you want a good movie about climate change that is not Don't Look Up, movie called First Reformed. <laughs> it was actually suggested on one of your previous climate episodes. I don't remember by who, but I would just recommend hmm. that to everyone. It's like my favorite movie ever. Very good. Um, Amanda Seyfried, Ethan Hawke, Cedric the Entertainer. Interesting yeah, cast. It's, <laughs> it's, it's kind a of thriller. a weird one. <laughs> it's not, I don't know if I'd call it a thriller, but it's thrilling. That's what I'll say. <laughs> okay, 2017 available on Hulu, which I now have because I go. co-opted it from someone who made the mistake of logging in on my laptop. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Abby, thanks for the suggestion. Yeah, um, and I just wanted to, I was watching um, the rising, early rising earlier, um, and one of the hosts was talking about the Elon Musk Twitter thing, and I was mm-hmm. very interested to hear your full take. I know this is kind of a topic change, but <laughs> you like only got to talk about it a little bit on the show because I think you were kind of did not have the majority opinion of that group. So I just kind of wanted to. That was so funny. Like, I I mean, Robbie and Kim are great, but like there was this presumption that because, you know, I'm the, I guess I'm I'm like the lib of the group (laughs) by comparison, (laughs) you know, that there's this presumption that I like am afraid of Elon Musk taking over Twitter because I think he's going to let Trump back on. And I hate that Trump Mm -hmm. got taken. I'm like, do you know me? Like, have you met me? Like, that is not my concern. (laughs) I agree with all of your critiques of how these you know, places are doing all the censorship and how they're being policed and the lack of transparency and all of that. My concern is that I think you're like kind of naive to think that Elon Musk, who is like a baby in a 48 year old's body is going to somehow <laughs> be more mature and reasonable about how to administer a site like Twitter. Like what? they're like, it can't get worse. I'm like, it most certainly could. It might yeah. not. But like, how are you all so confident that this is good news? This is at best neutral news. Yeah, I totally agree. I was, it's weird to me. Like, I like the point you brought up that this is like one guy instead of however yes. flawed multiple people. And like, we've seen his interactions on Twitter. Like, yes, I don't he's a baby. He's especially a fair communicator, <laughs> no matter right, how much you... he wants to say, he protects free speech. Like, right. I really think that's that's the and case. I couldn't find the story while we were live, but I found it later that there was that story about it was in the New York Times. It was titled a teen tracked Elon Musk's jet on Twitter. Then came the direct message. Some guy like he, he tried to go and yes. do vengeance on yeah, like this is this this is mm-hmm. the person you're super excited. <laughs> he has a maturity level. Look, sometimes I tweet when I shouldn't be tweeting. I say things that I shouldn't say. We all have a short fuse and we have our moments. But like this guy is like a serial, like serially immature on the internet. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying that that's how he's going to act. Or like he's just going to exact every impulse that he has. Like like is a direct button to like. Twitter controlling Twitter, like some big red button. But the reality is that the idea that you think that this is the man who's going to be reasoned, rational, (laughs) protecting free speech and democracy, like on what planet? He's an ego, he's an egomaniac. 
who's literally about to spend, he has more money than anybody on earth, and he wants to spend 40 odd billion dollars, million, million, billion. I forget how much money he has. Billion dollars, B with a B, buying a website because he's basically too online. Yeah. I mean, like, God bless, <laughs> whatever. It's none of my business. <laughs> it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway. <laughs> Join Rumble, everybody. I don't know. <laughs> I just wanted, I wanted to hear that little rant from you. So thank you for indulging me. <laughs> well, thank you for provoking yeah. me, Abby. Have yeah, a good keep one. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Jonathan, how are you? What's on your mind? Yeah, well, not that you don't often make me feel like, you know, you really speak for me. Like sometimes my words and thoughts feel like they're coming out of your mouth, but like, Aww. This this episode, well, you've done it like at least a dozen times since this call-in started. Uh, Stop, but Jonathan. this, like this, like this episode of Bad Faith this morning really put a fire in my belly. Hmm. And I'll tell you what, that rising uh, segment that you did uh, kind of poured gasoline all over it. <laughs> and it it occurs to me like the two things are connected uh, in a certain level. It's that that sense of of urgency. That, uh, you know, you, you see like with those, those two scientists and don't look up, like they're, they're trying to communicate that sense of urgency to people. And that kind of, at the end of the day is what, what forced the vote was about. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you're looking at the situation that has a a great deal of urgency. None of us is more than, you know, one or two degrees removed from somebody who's been a victim of, uh, you know, our healthcare system. Right. That's something that penetrates a lot of people's bubble. Yeah. And you see these people absolutely can do something. And for one minute there, okay, you had a great window of opportunity. You're like, you can do something. I see you can do something. Now you damn well better do it. And that frustration and that sense of urgency combine and that fire is, is just that's everything. That's what we need to communicate to people. That's what we need to make people feel. And, you know, you yeah. did a bang up job of it today. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. You know, I, I've been telling people privately for a while, like I have a Pramila Jayapal list, but I, you know, I don't want to be, look, I see what, and I'm not saying he's a, I agree with obviously, you know, the entirety of his approach, but I see what happened to Jimmy Dore the second he started saying anything critical about squad members. And you can say he's gone too far. I don't like he's characterized them and all of that. But a lot of other people would say that he was just ahead of the ahead of the game and kind of recognized and wasn't recognized what was going on and wasn't willing to give people as much benefit of the doubt. I felt like I owed some people some benefit of the doubt, rightly or wrongly. Maybe I'm too close to it all, you know, working on the campaign and all of that. But I, I wanted to make sure I wanted to be really sure that I had some evidence before I started making very public accusations about Pramila Jayapal. But I'm telling you, she's been on my, like I've, felt in my gut that she's the root of the rot in the progressive party for a really long time. And I started writing the, the radar just about Senator Turner and all of the terrible things about Chantel Brown. But I ended up cutting most of that because I realized what I was really, really mad at was bigger, a little bit bigger than that one raise. It was that this was like the final nail in the coffin that I think really unlocked uh, the mystery of Pramila Jayapal and what's going on here. And there's just, it's, there's, you can't argue. You can't argue with how rude this is, and to the extent that we've been having this conversation about electoralism, and I've been less strident than some other folks, like my friends from RBN, 
I, I'm just I'm having a really, really, really hard time. Excuse me, time justifying entryism when this is this is the progressive branch of the Democratic Party. This is how the progressives are behaving. Yeah, we saw what you saw. Okay, like a lot of us, including like several people that I know from Twitter that are in this audience right now. Uh, neoliberal tears on Twitter, who you retweeted earlier, mm-hmm. uh, you know, basically was was posting, you know, stuff about uh, Pramila Jayapal, you know, and the $15 an hour minimum wage thing, you know, every every five minutes on every on every Twitter thread. OK, like like we saw this. We saw what you saw. And like, frankly, like a lot of us have been waiting for this for ages. And you know what? It was worth the wait. Yeah, it was 100 percent worth the wait because that was absolute fire. Every single thing bullseye. And, you know, there's kind of no getting away from it at this point. Like, that's an ironclad case, you know. And she's been silent. She's been just been tweeting away all day about, you know, we got to have Medicare for all and da, 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 da. I mean, it's hard. And I can't imagine how, you know, Nina Turner is feeling about all of this. I, I you know, the, uh, there's a part of me that wants her to say, fuck it. And then like a blaze of fire, say, I'm, I'm switching parties. I'm going to keep running this race and see what she can do. If that would generate the level of enthusiasm and campaign donations that I think has thus far not been forthcoming from the left because of all of the frustrations around the democratic party and the belief that you can reform it. it right. I don't know that that's going to happen, but a girl can hope. But yeah, no, you know what, when we felt the most kinship, like, you know, just me and the people that I talk to on a regular basis mm-hmm. uh, with Nina Turner was when she said that line about voting for Biden being like eating a big bowl of dog shit. Yep. Okay. And that, okay, that was like something that resonated with us. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, there's a, a certain level of frustration on my part with just the failure to observe and learn from past experience or from other people's experience. Like, for instance, what works for our enemies, like Trump, okay? Mm -hmm. Like, what boosted Trump's numbers in the polls so much? What helped him win was when he made, like, a spot-on criticism in those rare rare times when he actually speaks the truth, Mm -hmm. okay? When he called out Jeb Bush or, Mm -hmm. you know, just basically, uh, you know, punched it at people like Marco Rubio. Mm -hmm. Or the media, Like, that's what was so irritating. Like, obviously, I don't think he should be telling the crowds to, like, go beat up cameramen, obviously. But but his generalized critique of the media bias, I mean, the the problem was it wasn't wrong. It wasn't wrong. That's correct. And, you know, what's more, um, that that about covers it. Like, the thing (laughs) is, like, people have been gaslighting conservatives for years because they saw a bias, and mm-hmm. they're wrong about which way the bias was or what the bias was or what caused the bias. Um, uh, and, you know, I've, I've heard the citations needed guys discussing that very issue before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, and they kind of framed it the same way I'm doing now. Like, basically, like, they're not like they're not seeing nothing. Like, don't don't tell them, you know, that uh, who are you going to believe me or your lying eyes. They can see right. something is off with their own eyes. And most people can. And that's, Did you, you know. That- that Brian Stelter clip that I think Kyle did a video on it uh, where he has some kind of media expert on and he's explaining about the bias on the respective news channels and 
he, you know, he says, so yeah, obviously like here's an event that Fox covered and CNN didn't. And here's an event that CNN covered and Fox wouldn't because of partisan reasons. And both channels are being driven by partisanship. And Brian Stelter makes kind of a joke like, oh, we're doing a little both siderisms right now, huh? Like trying to deflect from the idea that his own channel, even though presented with the graphical evidence by an expert he brought on the show, um, that his own channel had any bias. Like, I think that that's what's so weird. And it's, it's a weird experience for me being on the Hill too, because, you know, obviously it's a show with people with different political viewpoints. And I think that's why it makes it compelling and interesting. And we're talking about stuff and I can feel myself agreeing with everyone. And I'm like, well, what's missing in the real world is, you know, it, there's just no space for anyone. People And all the comments are like, oh, it's just so nice to have a rational conversation. Well, of course, I'm not going to sit here when I'm looking at something obviously dumb, like Diane Feinstein, like barely competently able to like shuffle through the hallways, acting like she's going to be anybody's um, congressional representative. You know, when I'm looking at these, uh, you know, Joe Biden flailing on these terribly low approval numbers. I think that people are so gaslit that it's amazing to them to hear a person on the left say, yeah, that stuff is wrong. And it's amazing for them to hear someone on the right say, actually, a don't say gay bill is ridiculous and bigoted and awful. Like, it, and it's such a low effing bar. But that is where we are. Yeah, and I mean, you get I've... so much credibility from do, just from just doing that. So much credibility. Brian Stelter, Joe Biden, any of them can gain so much trust from the public by just making the tiniest bit of concessions about their side not always being perfect. And they don't even see even for craven self-interested reasons, they should do it, you know, just for political reasons, even if they don't even believe it. But they are so narrow-minded they are so blinded by their own propaganda that they don't even believe that that's true liberals really i think conservatives on some level know that their their stuff is biased like they know they know what's going on in fox news liberals really think that fox news is the biased channel and cnn and msnbc is the neutral channel yeah that's what cracks me up about stelter in particular like uh, you know and katie helper always has fun with him on the monday morning show like it's <laughs> that because it's just it's so ridiculous like the guy is such uh, like it, he's a cross between like a, a cult member and a traditional bootlicker. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of sad, but also like, I hate to say I laugh at it, but I laugh at it. Like it's his, yeah. his analysis is just so, so like, far off, like I'll childish. Give him, I'll give him partial points for in January of last year is the last time I was invited on cable TV. And Brian Selter had me, Elizabeth Brunig and um, Dave Weigel on to talk about progressives and what's going on with us. But what was kind of hilarious is at the top of the segment, he had all of these logos of p- progressive media outlets to give the audience, I guess, a sense of like what we even were, like what it even was. And there were maybe 20, 25 graphics. And it was everything from like Chapo Trap House to Mother Jones. <laughs> and yeah. like, and like CNN was on the list, I believe, along with, you know, something that's like actually TYT or, or whatever. And it was just like such a hodgepodge. And the, the I, idea of having to explain to someone like what this ecosystem is, is I guess why I have to write that book, what I keep talking about. But it's, it's, we got a long way to go. But at least, look, at least he had the panel. At least he made an effort. Yeah. But I mean, that's, I know exactly what you mean. Like he's like, it's just, they're so far off. It's like they're that analysis that I used to hear in as a kid in the nineties mm-hmm. about media bias. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they haven't evolved at all since then. And like, they still, 
they still think this, you know, this team red, team blue stuff is is mm-hmm. real life. And yeah, I it's, mean, it, it, yeah, yeah. Go there ahead. was a conversation we had this morning about, you know, it, you know, is there going to be a third party challenger in 2024? And who it, the segment was actually about, oh, actually, maybe it hasn't aired yet. Maybe it's for a Friday roll. I don't know, guys. I don't know how this works. I'm sorry if I'm blowing the load of, of the hill. But um, I think it's going to come out tomorrow. And it's about a Reddit thread, popular Reddit thread asking, would you vote for Bernie again if you ran for 2024? And it sparked a conversation among all of us about you know, who could pick up the progressive mantle credibly. And, you know, it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a frustrating conversation, but in part because we, even with the, between the three of us who are savvy, like media online people, there was some disagreement about what counted as progressive. And then Kim was making some interesting points about who actually got pulled into the Bernie orbit, who might be willing to, align under like a Tulsi Gabbard style figure or a more conservative style figure. And is that populist energy, you know, malleable, how much of it can be molded to the right versus a left candidate? Is there still a bolus that's big enough to still be credibly described as the Bernie movement that could fall under a more conservative populist approach? And I kind of dismissed it saying, well, there's just not very many people like that, but I could be wrong because no, no, that's, that's 100% appetite correct. for something. Yeah, that's 100% correct. Like you can't, there's no reconstituting exactly the Bernie movement because you were right to a large degree about leaders. Like that movement coalesced around Bernie's particular energy. So Mm -hmm. whatever, like it's, and that's not to say like, I mean, look how fast it happened in 2016. Like Bernie just appeared out of nowhere. Nobody heard of this scruffy senator from Vermont, you know, Mm -hmm. except a few political insiders like Sirota. Uh, you know, who knew his career, you know, as a, as and a senator, my mom. And a house member. Yeah. <laughs> my mom but knew. Like, <laughs> uh, your mom, your mom is, is gifted like that. Uh, you know, that she is, basically like that, that episode you did with Ralph Nader was spectacular and she turned mm-hmm. you on to him too. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, the, like nobody really had ever heard of this guy before. I certainly hadn't. And, uh, all of a sudden, uh, we had permission to, uh, to dream of something bigger. And that's not going to go away, but you're not going to reconstitute a coalition like that. And trying to copy it, you're going to get a pale echo of the original. It's mm-hmm. got to be something new and some new person's charisma and energy. Uh, maybe somebody that's, you know, a little more serious about, you know, taking the shot when the enemy's in the crosshairs mm-hmm. uh, and not choking on it. Metaphorically, but, uh, metaphorically. Yes, meta- of course, <laughs> metaphorically, but... You know, but it's like I've been using that metaphor and perhaps I ought to find another one, but it's the best one I can think of (laughs) because like at the end of the day, like with Hillary Clinton and, you know, I'm sick and tired of hearing about those damned emails, uh, you know, handing her a free pass on that. And guess what did her in Mm. those damned emails? Mm -hmm. And, you know, she wasn't properly vetted. You think you did her a favor? I don't think Mm -hmm. so. And then there's Joe Biden and the corruption thing that this was Mm -hmm. over the minute he pulled back the choke chain on Zephyr Teachout. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I've seen, I, I feel like uh, David Sarita is in a fiery place on the internet right now. I saw him retweeting about that the other day. Oh, yeah. He's been on a roll. He, I was surprised when I, when I saw David Sirota go went on Jayapal and say fully, like, this is a careerist, uh, you know, selfish move. I was like, oh, okay. We're doing this. Let's go. It's go time. For me personally, I felt like that was my permission. Instead yeah. of well, I, David Sirota says this is enough evidence to fully just openly say she's corrupt, let's do it. It's go time. 
Yeah, like you and David are really like two of my heroes, and like the but you know it also frustrated me when David would hedge like that. It's like he had dual personalities, and his like journalist personality was pulling against his political personality, and that journalist personality wants to hedge. Ryan has a little bit of that that kind of characteristic as well. Ryan Grimm, you know, he doesn't come to any decision hastily, and you know he likes to play out all the angles and like, he's not going to come out with anything like really fiery unless like he's got a 150% like ironclad case. But like, man, when David goes fiery, like he is spot on, like that's great energy. I loved it. Yeah. I mean, I think he's marshalling his evidence. I mean, the thing is, look, I know this can sound like I'm making apologies for people and it's fine, but I do think that there is, you risk your credibility when you shoot and you miss. You know, and there are so many people. I remember once I did a somewhat careless tweet and Nate, um, not Nate Silver, uh, Ezra Klein, who never deigns to reply to me, never, you know, engages with me at all. I think pretty much doesn't, you know, thinks I'm a political non-entity, only responded the one time I was a little uncareful in whatever I was saying. I don't know if it's statistical sloppiness or something like that. And, you know, it's just in the, and I got like ratioed. And I was mad at myself because it was my own fault. And it's like those moments, I mean, that's like a stupid Twitter example, but if you're a journalist like David and you spend so much time, you know, crossing your T's and dotting your I's and making sure that when you make an accusation, it's real, you get so many slings and arrows for saying the truth. I remember the vitriol that came at him in the, at the beginning of 2019 before Bernie announced, just because he wrote that article about Beto O'Rourke violating the fossil fuel pledge. It was not an op-ed. It was just a straight reporting piece. Here's the op, here's the open secrets. Here's the money he took. Here's the pledge. Here's the pledge says he can't take that money. Cut, paste, print, done. People went and lost their minds. And when you are receiving all of that bad faith criticism, you just don't want to open the door to anything that's legitimate. And so, yeah, maybe you're ruminating a little longer than you need to. And maybe that's not revolutionary energy and someone else has to be the revolutionary and he can be the journalist that's feeding them tidbits. But I, I got to say, I don't know what I would do without David Sirota. I don't know what I would know. <laughs> I don't know how I would understand what's going on in the Hill. Like I, I'm willing to forgive a multitude of sins because of the benefit that he provides me personally as someone who's trying to do this work. So I appreciate yeah, you too. calling in, Jonathan. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, B, you are up next. I don't know that I've seen you in the chat before, B. Hey, Brianna. Uh, I did call before once and I went on a rant about veganism. <laughs> so that's me. <laughs> that sounds vaguely familiar. How are you doing tonight? What's on your mind? Well, thank you. I just want to say I'm so appreciative of the content you've been putting out lately and you were such a joy to watch on The Rising. Um, thank you. But if it's, okay, if it's okay, I just want to take the conversation maybe back to the environmental um, aspect. I haven't gotten Absolutely. through, yeah, I haven't gotten through with the entire episode, but. Um, and I might have a really unpopular take. It's going to trigger some people. It's often falsely attributed to like classism or privilege. <laughs> um, but I think it is something we rarely see addressed. Um, like personally, I'm finding it increasingly difficult to take these climate change advocates seriously when they don't really ever mention or address the impacts of agricultural animal farming. Mm. You know, we say we want change, but we keep funding our own destruction, you know, for the sake of something as fleeting or as shallow 
as taste pleasure. When like I hardly ever see anybody on the left mention it's the second largest contributor for human-made greenhouse gas mm-hmm. um, after fossil fuels. And it is something that we can feasibly tackle in, in terms of if we want to talk about what we can do and not feel so, you know, that our efforts are futile. You know, to meet the global goal of, of limiting global warming to two degrees, we have to inc- we have to decrease our annual emissions uh, from today's 49 gigatons of CO2 to 23 by 2050, which is very feasible through the elimination of the animal agriculture industry or just by making some slight changes. Um, Rose, I think she spoke a lot about soil quality, and obviously I appreciate her expertise much more than I would know about this situation. But I don't know if she even mentioned animal agriculture, which is like one of the leading causes of erosion and nitrogen pollution. Like a third of the planet's ice-free land is covered by like 70 billion animals. And we sort of like are completely fine with this practice and even funded and glorify these farmers. And when in fact, like if we're going to talk about urgency and what people can do individually or collectively, it and this is going to sound really preachy, but it is in fact switching to a plant-based diet because it's if you think about it it's the it's the leading thing somebody can do individually to reduce their carbon emissions what you eat is a choice that you make you know every day over the course of your entire life three times and it is proven to work so you know in a much shorter span of time than the type of things that we are sort of protesting against or advocating for if we want to talk about urgency i mean it's been proven we, we, we consistently are having to bail out the meat and dairy industries because they're just they're not making the amount of money that they need we consistently have to subsidize them through our taxes uh and we and we can we've also seen you know the rise in plant-based milk and meat alternatives i i'd like to liken this to the cognitive dissonance that people have when thinking of that change can be had through the two-party system. But nobody ever mentions this. You know, the, the reforms most people are advocating for will take decades to implement. But these alternatives ex- exist now. Um, you know, but again, back to the topic of urgency, they're the things we can address both individually and collectively just through the choices we make. And we can feasibly assist farmers transition to plant-based agriculture. Like basically you end up seeing less health-related deaths, less natural disasters, less emissions, less deforestations, water pollutions, all the things the left claims, you know, to care about. But the answer staring them right in the face. And like, for example, we freak out over oil spills, but we're completely fine or don't acknowledge the danger that we're causing to the oceans hourly (laughs) that is much more permanent in in the terms of damage that it does just through industrial fishing. And I just want to sort of end, I'd love for you to feature a guest that's infinitely, I guess, more knowledgeable than I on the topic because I I think it's just hardly acknowledged and we always seem to just scapegoat around the topic. Do you have a guest in mind? Do you have ideas? Um, if you can, uh, um, Ed Winters, Earthling Ed, is, is, has an incredible book and he's such a, uh, a well-spoken and very reasonable and, and tempered um, advocate for, um, you know, plant-based agriculture and Did the transition to Earth, Earthwing Ed? Is that his hand? No, no. Earthling Ed, if you Earthling. check out some of his documentaries, yeah, on YouTube, he's got a book out called This is Vegan Propaganda How the, and Other Lies the Meat Industry Tells You. Uh, I know it sounds really preachy, but he's actually quite a pleasure to, to listen to. And he's not very, com- he's not combative in his nature. And he comes armed with facts, a lot more facts than I can list. And it just, it's just really frustrating when I just ever hardly hear this addressed when people speak about climate change on the left. I don't even know if it was mentioned as a as a leading cause in the movie don't look up which is always like celebrated um and that's just where i'm coming at it from yeah sorry if i I don't know what the asteroid equivalent (laughs) i don't know how how the 
agriculture or, or animal um, raising. I don't know why I can't find words. Because uh, I've been <laughs> up since six o'clock in the morning, and I know. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, the I don't know how that fits into an, an asteroid analogy, but I take your point. I mean, I know that I had a conversation back when I had my old first podcast, Swody, with Nathan Robinson, and because he had written this article about, you know, he had written two articles, one about the ethics of eating meat, and another one about. Oh, well, let's stick with that one. It was called something like um, "We're doing." something very provocative, like we're doing an animal holocaust every day. You know, he was being intentionally provocative to get people to click on this article. We'll feel all these ways about veganism, but it was interesting and it was, it was provocative. And I, I'm as someone who, you know, eats meat. I don't ever want to be one of those people who, because of my own defensiveness, won't acknowledge the truth of what other people are saying just because my willpower or, you know, whatever isn't where it needs to be. Yeah. Um, And I genuinely think like, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Well, I just was going to say that I, I also, what I really liked about Nathan's article is that he didn't frame it in these absolutist terms. He said, okay, maybe you don't want to stop. Maybe you're not going to be vegan, but like, can you, can you do better? Can you eat less? Well, exactly. Like, I mean, even if you could care less about animals, animal welfare, you know, even, mm-hmm. even um, acknowledging that morality is you know, very subjective and ethics are, are going to change from culture to culture. Let's just bring it back to the basic, basic, you know, human impact, even if, even if you value, you know, humans as a species more so than anything else, this is coming back to bite us in ways that are, you know, unimaginable. Um, so no matter how you spin it, even if you couldn't care less about the welfare of animals, it's, it's still one of the leading causes of, envi- of environmental impact that it's people can change. coming back to bite us, B. It's coming back yeah. to bite us. That doesn't sound very vegan. <laughs> Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. You <laughs> no, slapped no, my hand. Um, <laughs> that, no, you're completely right. Yeah. yeah, you're completely right. And I I wrote down your guest suggestion and I appreciate it. You're you're right. And I'm, oh, I'm thank you so much. I, I genuinely yeah. would love to hear your takes on the topic, even if they're for or against. Uh, just because I think it's something rarely discussed and it'd be quite intriguing. Well, you know, I did do an, 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 a podcast episode that came out about a month ago uh, with this guy, uh, Wayne, oof, what is his last name? Uh, and he, he, I met him through um, Leighton Woodhouse, who does a lot of vegan advocacy. He, I think, mostly does video work and was connected with The Intercept at one point. Uh, and he connected me with his friend, Wayne. And toward the end of our episode, we had a long conversation about veganism and how to get the left more committed to at least talking about it and i was similarly very frank about you know not being vegan but having experimented with pescatarianism and stuff for a period of time in recent history and you know how to go about messaging as someone who is not in fact practicing veganism giving advice about that was kind of interesting but uh, yeah, and the thing is, even if you yeah. didn't want to be vegan, the alternatives exist for like funding, maybe more lab lab um, grown meat, re, um, you know, technology. You, in fact, most cheeses these days, the lactase is like artificially implanted, and you don't even need a cow. So, I mean, these technologies exist. There's really no need to be causing this much destruction, and there's actually no need to even give up meat or dairy. We just need to be funding those alternatives and assisting farmers and and switching to those alternatives. Uh, so. Well, it's just hell really... my complexion so i'm already there with yeah. you <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah so i don't mean to sound like oh you must go vegan but no how no you're, you're great yeah. you're great i appreciate you b thank you so much for calling in thank you brie thank you all right rudy what's crack a what's on your mind tonight can you unmute yourself rudy 
Hey, Bree, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing better. I'm doing better. Um, I saw that you, you know, turned a little bit against uh, the head of the progressives, and I'm happy about that. I can't wait till you invite her, and then you give her the Rokana treatment. I don't know if that's an invitation that'll be accepted these days, but you're right. I should try and give her the opportunity. Um, yeah, so I wanted to look a little bit at international politics. Um, so the Marshall Islands, and I'm not sure when this was, but I was just watching uh, something on CGTN, and he was talking about uh, the, Marshall, the Marshall Islands getting closer to China. And so there was a conversation between, you know, a lot of like level-headed people instead of like what you see on CNN and the likes. And they were talking about how the U.S. and, you know, the U.S. has a, a long history with the Marshall Islands. That's like what we tested the nukes for. Like, if, if I'm not incorrect, we, we dropped a nuke like every few days for a long time. So, but, but basically the Marshall Islands that has been, you know, a, a territory of ours has been pretty much just... We, we've just ignored them for the longest time as they've suffered the most out of like most land, you know, we. Rudy? Um, can you hear me? Oh yeah. Sorry. I just cut out for a second. Yeah. After you said we, that, that was the alarm. Um, I was just saying that when we're talking about um, climate change, oftentimes we're talking about the future. We're talking about, I mean, yeah, from time to time, there's a big storm. And so we're saying, oh, it's right here. But a lot of times we're talking about, oh, it's 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And the Marshall Islands, they've been, they've had climate change issues for for years now. And so they've, one of the reasons why they've um, teamed up with China is because China seems to be taking climate change more seriously than the United States. And it's just like, it just seems to be another, it seems to me just like another thing that I didn't really expect would happen, but there's so many things changing right now. Um, the dollar obviously losing its um, position that it has had for decades. You, you're, seeing Saudi, you're seeing Saudi Arabia now selling its oil in... Um, you know, it, it makes me somehow, like, I guess, optimistic. But at the same time, it's, you know, I don't know. What do you think? Are these random changes that we just would not have expected a year ago? Are, are these, like, things that are getting you more optimistic? Or are you thinking, you know, more of the same well, you know, I felt a little, uh, you know, like a lot of people, a big loss of revolutionary potential at the end of the Bernie campaign. Um, and I think I was pretty pessimistic for most of 2021. But I don't know. I guess I am feeling, I mean, there were these moments during the pandemic and frankly around force of vote where it did feel like there was a potential for something and then that got squashed and or quashed. And I, I, I do, I guess, feel like there's something about the instability of the world that opens itself up for revolutionary potential, but also, you know, for a lot of loss yeah, and, and harm that isn't necessarily going anywhere. And that's kind of the accelerationist dilemma, you know, it's, yeah. it's a weighty, it's a weighty, I think it's a valid political 
orientation, but it's we should never pretend it's not a weighty one. It's not a risky one. It's not an ethically complicated one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. And the thing that drives you mad is just like how petty a lot of the stuff that, you know, is causing so much misery is. It's this, you know, position exchanges, a little bit of, and the, our politicians are corrupted by just a, thousand, a few thousand dollars corrupts our Congress people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we're talking about how the damage is going to be in the trillions and it's just pocket change, what we're asking to be done um, to be able to, so we can, you know, save millions of people. And it's, you know, Biden, it's, it's crazy, but um, can I just say, I think one of the other things that drives me insane is how we look at how we're treating China and we expect them to somehow back us up with uh, against Russia. I'm not I'm not on team USA. I'm I'm actually more on like team Pentagon on in this thing. But it's like we're we're treating the Africans like shit. We're treating like the Latinos like shit. Trump called their countries shitholes and then we're now saying this is the war which erases all the other wars. Um and then we're saying to the Africans hey, you guys, like, back us up against a Russia that actually fought against the United States and, segreg- like, South, South Africa. I'm, I'm, I'm not on the team of the warmongers, but these people, it seems just like that reality has completely just beat them. They, they just have absolutely no more moves because how, how do they expect that China is going to back them up? How are they expecting that Latin America is going to back about Africa? It's it's crazy. Yeah, there's a segment again. I don't know if it aired today or if it airs tomorrow that we recorded this morning where there was a really interesting guest. Oh, it was um, was this the segment that we did with uh, Alex? Uh, goodness, Alex, 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 Alex. Oh. God, it's around the tip of my tongue. Anyway, he's he's lefty and he's big on Twitter. Anyway, it was talking about uh, uh, reporting about how attitudes in the global south are just not what they're – they're not like for Russia, but they're heavily not interested in our inter- – in, in the Western interests, right? They're like, there's no Ukraine flags flying on every block the way that we have going on. And how I think that a lot of people in the West are kind of like – surprised by this um andrew perez sorry it was andrew perez i think in this segment and it was interesting perspective because we're not hearing a lot about how the rest, rest of the world is is thinking about us because i think america and our media system would love to believe that everyone's supporting of, of, of us always folks like to this came up in my coleman hughes uh, interview recently really emphasized the idea that everyone wants to come to america and everybody loves america oh and yeah they, i like that they, i like that they, check you did on them yeah, and they bring up the statistic like, well, most immigrants want to come to America. I'm like, that's not the same thing as like loving America. Understanding that America is the wealthiest person uh, country in the world and might have right. more opportunities in other countries is not the same thing as everyone just sitting around with like a hard on for America. I promise you, as someone who grew up in international schools, these people are very proud of where they're from <laughs> and yeah. are dragging America and are fat, lazy ass. I mean, they say all kinds of terrible things. I mean, like, I'm not saying they're right. 
but it's it's like a very mixed bag and it's almost it's embarrassing it's like the emperor's emperor with no clothes that americans are walking around thinking that everyone thinks they're so lucky and great all the time it's it's more complicated than that it's more nuanced than that people wanting an opportunity is not the same thing as just thinking that you're like culturally superior or aesthetically superior or food superior or any any aspect of it superior you know but it's it's so crazy because this like we're, we're, we're like children a lot of times the things that we believe i check myself all the time sometimes i'm just like what the heck was i thinking it's just the the dumbest thing because i mean on one hand we're talking about how everybody's equal on the other hand we're surprised that china is the greatest economy in the world they have a billion how many people how how do we expect to compete it's this crazy reasoning that these people have and we're we're sort of we're held hostage to these people and it, this last part, even in France, like I've, I've been to France um, and Marine Le Pen is saying, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of people in France that do not want to be part of NATO, you know, and Marine Le Pen is out here saying that we don't want to, I'm the candidate of no NATO as they're watching NATO try to like burn Europe with, it, it, it is, the, it's crazy and I'm actually afraid what the Democrats, their irresponsibility is where it's going to get us because I don't think there, I don't think people will continue to keep voting for Democrats. I think at some point people will bite the bullet again. Yeah, I think, I, that, I think where... that moment is today. I, I, today, I, I don't know. You guys have been with me on this journey. Today felt like a real line in the sand, like a real Rubicon crossing moment. And I don't like I'm so disgusted. I gotta tell you, I am so disgusted with how what they're doing with Nina Turner. Not and not and not just about Nina Turner, but what it means about the integrity of the Progressive Caucus and not just the Progressive Caucus, which we've always known as BS, but some of these figures within who even if they still individually support Senator Turner, like I know that Cory Bush has endorsed Senator Turner, the silence and the face right. of this level of disrespect is and unconscionable. And Nina bit her tongue. We were pushing her to say something to condemn these people's inactions, and she bit her tongue. And I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm, uh, I'm that sad about what you know happened ultimately because it, these are the snakes that she was backing. It. it yeah, it, it, if they wanted us to ever conclusively decide that there was no point with, in working within the Democratic Party between this and India, Wal India Walton, who I was able to meet in person for the first time at that um student debt rally i referenced earlier like right. that those two i'm you know as they say in swahili quisha kabisa i'm all done <laughs> even, <laughs> but thank even, you rudy i appreciate i appreciate you calling and i gotta move on but i appreciate you go calling ahead. even the young turks yeah um hi sonia unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind tonight hi brie uh thanks for uh having me on i I think people can get a little bit fatalistic when it comes to just who's in power and the focus should be on how we ourselves can pressure them because a lot of change has happened and um, you know some of it happens at the local level so people don't always see it. I'm thinking specifically of the removal of the Klamath dams where I live in Northern California. The tribes have been fighting for 20 years to get those dams removed. And, you know, it's been through all sorts of different administrations. Um, 
but they needed it to be removed in order for the habitat to be restored for all of these endangered fish species they rely on and the environment in general too. Um, but through working with state, local, and federal legislators, fishermen, environmentalists, within a year or two, the dams will be finally coming down. And that took 20 years of work. Um, I think part of it is that the tribes haven't had a choice in terms of who's in power. They've just had to kind of do whatever it took. And that included protesting, going to government hearings and all sorts of other, um, you know, protests and democratic action that I think we should also kind of consider when we're thinking about how we want to participate democratically beyond just voting, um, because these are long fights. And I think, um, you know, we as humans, we're ritualistic creatures. So we need people to get into this habit and create a culture of civic participation. So they feel like they're actively engaged citizens who are shaping the future. And, you know, leaders will naturally emerge through that. And I think it's great to hear, you know, a lot of people are going to their city council meetings and things like that, because I think that's where the next generation of political leaders are gonna get battle ready too. And if, they go in as Democrats and Republicans, then they're gonna get inculcated into their way of doing things. But if we start a third party and have people start at the local level, they can prove to like the public that they are authentic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think about it sometimes how my mother tried to do certain things with us when we were young. And it was still a little difficult living overseas sometimes, but she always wanted us to be involved more in civic activities in a way that wasn't always possible because of where we were living. And I think now how, what it would be like if I had been in the States and certain kind of behavior had been modeled and maybe if we had been going to town halls and local events and what that would look like and if I were to have children, if I would be able to model that for them. Because it does feel like there's a kind of I think you use the word habit, um, a kind of a, a habit or a ritual, ritualization of these activities that's been lost, a kind of cult, uh, ingrained cultural uh, attention to these kinds of activities that doesn't really exist, especially in these atomized apartment dwelling lives that we live today. And to the first caller's point, or I guess Grace was maybe the second caller's point, I miss that. I, I, I long for that kind of connection on a spiritual level as in addition to on a kind of political level. So I appreciate your comments and thank you for calling in. Thanks. All right. I have Greg next. Uh, we're going to wrap at 11. So I'm going to try to get as many of you in as possible. If you can, you know, keep it succinct. Unmute yourself, Greg, and let us know what's on your mind. Gregory. What's on your mind? Sorry, sorry, I was eating a bagel. I was eating a bagel. <laughs> no All worries. Right. How can I complain um, when I was stuffing down uh, butter chicken the entire time I was playing oh, my nice. my clip from this morning? How many stars are you? No, no, no stars. Oh, this is my favorite spot in in DC. I'm completely here for it, even despite my uh, dairy no, how intolerance. Spicy. How spicy? Oh, spicy? it's butter chicken. Usually, it's like not really yeah, spicy. Usually it's not spicy, but sometimes you could. You could. Anyways. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. What's on your, what are you thinking about tonight, Gregory? Greg. I don't know. I've, I was shorted two times tonight or today. You know, I've been what do you mean shorted? Well, you know, I called into both Glenn Greenwald and then the other show he plugged afterwards. And I was like, oh, almost going to ask my question. Yeah. I was going to ask him about Ukraine and stuff and really not. Oh, so this is your consolation prize, Greg. You're calling me and you're like, Oh, well, I was, I was going to, I was going to get to ask. The no, I'm still working. Greg. I'm still working. I'm just doing what I've been doing all day, mm-hmm. you know, trolling through the, through telegram and just sending out emails and, uh, may I ask what you do at people. this late hour? Um, I'm doing elevator duty or I was doing elevator duty at, at these buildings because nobody else was going to do coverage. I work in like housing. Okay, cool beans. <laughs> it's nice that you have, so, you know, and nice. I know that's like, it's all relative, but the ability to listen to some podcasts while you're at work. Yeah. What do you think I of- mean, I, I mean, I, I just, yeah. Yeah. Basically. What do you think about this argument, um, about who, you know, the cohort of, uh, Joe Rogan listeners are who can listen to these three hour long episodes and that it is this kind of invisibilized, like kind of work that doesn't get portrayed in like the office or whatever that so many people do where you're able for long stretches because of the downtime or because Um, you're driving or whatever it is to listen and that it's cultivated this intense fan base in this like mm, largely mm, visibilized community. it's like it's like a similar phenomena to talk radio, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't listen to Joe Rogan really, mm-hmm. uh, but I know people who do. Like I know people who are, I mean, the people who I know that tend to listen to Joe Rogan tend to be in like car mechanics or maintenance kind of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I have tend a... to be males. But yeah, you know, I listen to Joe Rogan every once in a while. Only like I don't listen to an episode, but I'll like see it clip of somebody yeah, interesting he has on that you know i'll just click on i don't but i honestly haven't clicked on anything in his stuff in like a while because i've been very focused on what's going on in ukraine but yeah, yeah. so i'm not okay, really well i don't know what i was gonna ask i guess is i also live <laughs> in the state that pramila Jayapal represents and i'm just not interested in her at all i've been very disenchanted with the Democratic Party for a long time, and I've been listening to all the callers, and it's been a very interesting roller coaster ride of emotions, and how I've reacted. And Do you have I any inside like one... stuff? Any stuff that's been going on locally that we might not know about with her? Well, no, but I have a well. I'll, I'll plug in later. But I have a friend who's running in the 36th district in Washington, hmm. so I want to plug him. But I was going to say. Um, Oh, I think just we need to also, if we're going to, because I I know people want to do something and I just don't think protesting is all that useful unless it's a really like mm, succinct issue that can be acted on and it has to be done strategically and not just ritualistically, I think. We need to look more strategically. Uh And... uh, I, yeah, I'm, I, I hear was you. Pointing Greg. this out to a lot of my friends, like I was like, "Oh, I think this the movement in 2020 is going to lead to more police funding in the future." To put it just very like simply, it's not what exactly what I said, but that is end, what ended up happening, which is yeah, we'll see if we disappointing can, to me. If I had my druthers, <laughs> this people would be using the uh, the complete bungling of this week's shooting in New York to press for lowering 
you know, defunding the police. I'm sorry. Like everyone, I know that everyone, including most of the left is like over defund, which I got to say, Colin is where I say the things. It's a cuck move. You guys are, you guys are so (laughs) cucked over defund the police. You guys are acting so pathetic. I hate it so much. I I do not. If you don't want to say defund, don't say defund. (laughs) But like, I I was trying to get to the segment with, through the segment without saying the word defund because I wanted people to hear me and not get triggered. But I was also like, I don't know another word for give the police less money. (laughs) Like, it's staring us in the face. All of this evidence. It's not just like like, give them less money, give them better training or different kinds of training or expand expand it so that there's like mental health. (laughs) We're sitting here in the hours after a shooting with Eric Adams having done absolutely nothing, talking about how this is why we need more support and funding. And he's going to use a moment where he literally has standing around with his asses. We're going to take a moment where he's standing around with his, you know, I'm not going to be that vulgar you know, his, you know, what in his hand, and he's going to have the audacity to be asking for more. And we have the facts on our side on this one. And we're not going to press for all, our cause because you guys are all cucked over to fun, like grow a pair, grow up. Well, but anyway, I got to move on, Greg, you know because we only got, we've only got a couple minutes left. And subway. I'm just going to be saying like, not the, not the police. Cause uh, the subway needs yeah. more money. Cause that, that yeah. thing floods all the time from what I hear. Yeah, for so. sure. But thank yeah. you, Greg. I got to go to the next caller, but have a good night. Yeah. Thanks for calling. You too. All right, Sili, Sele, how are you doing today? Sele, hi. Sele. I'm embarrassed to say that I, I haven't found the episode to, to watch it, but I was I wanted to talk about the climate change issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, I, it was really good what you talk about uh, with foreign policy. Uh, the Marshall Islands actually are completely disappearing. They are mm. the, the government is buying land in other countries to relocate the people, and in spite of, um, um, also not only did a lot of tests the U.S. but they left a lot of um, the material from uh, nuclear material, you know, radioactive material, and it's filtering the it, under cement and it's filtering into the water. Mm. And um, the thing is, uh, today, 300 people died in South Africa. I don't know if you knew. I saw uh, someone in the chat saying something about it, but I, I confess I haven't seen the story I, it yet. It was me. <laughs> oh. Uh, it was a flood. And, and mm. it's, it's 300, but of course it's going to rise. And I don't mm. know if you're really informed. What I, what I, uh, I mean from calling, what I get is that you're not really getting all the news about what's happening in the well, world. Well, there's a lot of news, Sally. There's a lot of no, news. No, but with, no, no, but with the climate change. And, for instance, uh, the, the, the last Glasgow, um, uh, you know, summit where they... Uh, mm-hmm. Do you know if the government is doing at least those things? They're not giving the money that they were supposed to give to the poor countries that they were supposed to help in changing for to renewals. And I'm not trying to blame anyone. I mean, if I was going to be responsible for what my government did, I would be in jail. That's for sure. I mean, it's not, I'm not telling you are that what I, what I see is that uh, the, the information that's getting is that, is something that is going to happen. 
or that happens every now and then, of course, but it's every day. It's every mm-hmm. day. I mean, yeah. it's a, the same fires that you had and happened in Canada. Then happened in the South. We lost most of wetlands, which is the most important thing for <laughs> climate change. And um, there is a lot of... Uh, today I was watching um, the... Uh, uh, Perkins is his name. Uh, the... What was, what was the thing? The, uh, the economic hitman. Do you know what that is? No, I don't think so. Well, I have it in Katie Helper's uh, show, and I, I watch it, mm-hmm. and it's how uh, the U.S. is still uh, in, the, um, the intervening in different ways mm-hmm. in different countries, and that's what we were saying. I mean, the reason you are rich is because you exploded a lot of our countries mm. and took the money. And it's not, I'm not saying you the people. I'm not saying you the people. That's for sure. I'm saying the government is a way that your government, since a lot of long time, is been hiding a lot of things from you. Mm. And it's, it's really not, not, it's not the people's fault at, at all. At all. Yeah. Besides, you have no... Every time I see how you try to vote for Bernie or for something and you get crashed and it, it breaks my soul because it's not only for the rest of the world, but for you, it's, it's very, you are in a very tough position. And I, want, I was wondering because it's very hard for governments to do something. I mean, look at the vaccine waivers. But then, mm. There's a, a huge pandemic and economically it's screwing every country up and anyway governments are co-opted by this big corporation and they're not even given a waiver to stop the pandemic that could have stopped the pandemic and could have stopped a lot of people dying especially in your country mm-hmm. because we have a big culture of vaccines and as soon as it appears we gave ourselves the russians the, the russian vaccine the chinese vaccine we didn't care much mm-hmm. but it's um, what I'm seeing is like uh, there's a lot to talk about, and mm-hmm. there's a lot to talk about, and how intellectually we do this and we approach the thing and that. But the thing is that if the two major countries, if China and the US, don't stop polluting, it doesn't matter what the rest of the world does. Yeah. Well, thank, and thank that you. Is really mm-hmm. tough. I'm sorry. I didn't. No, no, no worries. <laughs> I just want to, I want to thank you. I know I have to wrap because at the top of the hour and then I just saw Sylvester at the back. I told him I'd bring him back up and I completely forgot until I just saw him hanging okay. back there. So I'm going to take one more, but I appreciate you calling in as always. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, you Bye. don't have nothing to apologize for. Don't apologize. I, I, you're completely right about there being a lot to cover and me having limited bandwidth and a lot being cut from us. And so I appreciate you bringing it to our attention. I'll definitely keep my eye out for that South African flood story. Sylvester, unmute yourself and close us out tonight. Man, I thought she was treating me like the CPC. <laughs> like how they did Nina. I'm like, damn. Only them block me out. I thought Stop. we were all good. It's too soon, Sylvester. It's too soon. <laughs> I thought they captured you for a minute. Damn. Okay, well, I'm glad you came back around. Uh, <laughs> I'm dead. I'm going to have to start using that. Yo, you trying to CPC me right now? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> when, you, when you think when you think they're your homie, but they really not, you start to see me. <laughs> Can we get some memes going to that? Oh, we got We got to. That she it's so funny. And what's her name is she just you know what? I should have something about her. You know, it's way like it's hindsight's twenty twenty. But something about Pramila. When she started talking about her mama and how happy they was when Biden picked up the phone, I said, listen, if all it takes is a phone call, baby, if all it takes is a phone call, we, we don't need you in the position that we got you positioned in, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, because it's like, what's that that show? Um, I think it's like 48, uh, the first 48, the first 48 were like they put that Coke can in front of you when they when they when you're ready to snitch. And it mm-hmm. it don't take a lot to get. That's what Pramila did. She just, <laughs> just dropped everything because Biden said, "I'll call your mama and tell her that you're doing a great job." And you know, immigrant parents they so happy when we just doing something in America. You know, <laughs> you know. So, oh man. It's a oh, lot. Oh God, I needed that. I needed it's that, Sylvester. I'm like wiping <laughs> tears from my eyes right now. <laughs> Imagining the interrogation scenario with Pamela Jayapal with that cocaine in front of her. <clears throat> don't take a lot. Some people it take less, you know. So you know, uh, what what do you what do you, I mean? We've been talking about a lot. We've been on the call for a couple hours. You had the candidates on, uh, Rev. Wendy. And uh, I think Ali Ali Dulcimer. Yeah, I I said this in the Patreon, but people here might not know. She actually dropped out of her race um, this week, not too long after we did the episode. And, uh, you know, I I feel kind of conflicted about it because it was an emotional episode and I was really feeling for her and how frustrating it must be to have taken this approach and to really believe in it and to be trying so hard and to invest so much and. You know, I heard that she, you know, she was saying that she had taken out from her entire retirement savings to invest in this campaign and then to be told, you know, it's all for naught. And I I think, you know, I agree that I don't agree with the strategy. I don't think it was very effective, but that doesn't mean she's not a human being who wasn't doing what she thought was right and doing it to fight for other people. And there's something that makes me very sad about how this is all ended because our people so often they're not like some Bloomberg billionaire who can just blow a billion and not think about it. They're real people who are invested in working class issues because they are themselves working class or close to it. And it, it just kind of breaks my heart. She needed that. She yeah. needed uh, this. Is why this is why I say she needed that. Um, Cause I, you know, even me, I ran for Congress for a <laughs> short like amount of time, but I, I think that you, you need, I think everyone kind of needs to go through that type of heartbreak with this process Mm -hmm. to realize that the answers that you think are going to come through that aren't going to come through just that. Because even when I was listening to the call a little bit, um, and again, I I feel like you can you can pair the things what you're doing just because you're doing things on the inside doesn't mean that you can't do things on the outside, vice versa. So I always, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't leave any tool off the table. When it comes to, we don't say organizing. I don't know what the word that we. <laughs> Yo, I did not mean to make organizing a dirty. No, no, word no, that's okay. It's a, it's a trigger word in this room, so we're not going to use it any. It's a safe space. We want you to keep on coming back here, so we won't use that word anymore. Um, well, working groups. I don't know. We'll figure out. Something. <laughs> 
some euphemism. We'll come up with some euphemism you for it. Guys are so silly. Um, so you know, I don't. Yeah. So we can we can do we can do a lot of different things. But um, it seemed like there was a real heavy overinvestment in that process that I think that you get kind of caught up in when you're going through it because. It, it's very when you're running a campaign it's very individualistic like you're trying to garner all this support for you and then you're selling yourself to people like i'm going to be the one that does this this is my platform that i'm bringing that's going to change the material conditions of your life and then we all know like the truth of the situation is you by yourself are going to get swallowed up into this 430 some odd member beast and when you think you can do x you can't really do x because that's not it's not structured for you to be able to do x i mean that's why it was pressing because i could see an argument right like i don't know the details of what uh you know her opponent voted for exactly or if she could have been deciding vote to flip one way or the other in the house and like, I can understand an argument that says it's a de minimis difference, but here's the difference I can make versus Connolly. Like, I, I, I might not agree that it's worth the time and effort, but I can, I can understand that. I, I can see supporting that. But I need you to have a theory of why you're able to, one, how you're going to be able to do that and how you're going to be able to behave differently than all the other people in there before. And at very least, I need a very strong statement of a willingness to be adversarial <laughs> and loud and big and annoying. I need you to be the Marjorie Taylor Greene of the left. <laughs> I mean, you know, without the guns and all. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, um, and I even to even piggyback more off of, you know, what you're, what you're saying um, in terms of different things that we need to be like, okay, this will, this will be different. For me personally, the place and like even getting Nina in, right? Mm-hmm. The numbers just aren't there. Um, and when you have people like Peter, you know, and I, I'm forgetting, forgive me, I forgot the other guest that was on Rose. there. Mm-hmm. Rose, thank you. Um, when they come on and they're talking about all the timeline, like the, like the, the time that we have, mm-hmm. like the way that we're having these conversations or like we have decades to... Mm-hmm get the numbers needed to fix it within this structure. Right. Like that's not going to happen. Like the numbers just aren't there. So it's just and not. And that's why I was getting a little edgy with, you know, you know how much I love him, Chris Hedges. Some people were brown here being such a brat. It's like, no, no, no. Yes. I'm being a little bit of a brat. I'm, I am a brat. It, I'm the youngest child. Own but, it. Another Own part, it. <laughs> but the other part of it is that like, it's not just me. Like, am I going to waste my life doing this? I and mean, nothing's going to come of it. It's, we don't, we literally don't have the time. Like the world is going to end. We're going to hit the climate cut points. It's going to be a disaster. Like we need to be, we, we cannot be thinking or like the guest earlier, the caller earlier. Um, sorry, you know, we're having this back and forth about how much theory needs to be done and how we need to convince the DSA. Like, honestly, I we need to be banging on time. stuff. You know, I, I press them a little bit on, you know, does property damage count as violence? And I know we, we can only sew so much on apps, <laughs> but like it, it, it Whatever you feel like is ethically appropriate or legally appropriate, which are not the same thing, right. I and I think it's very difficult to argue against the tr- strategic necessity of ramping it up, given what's at stake. That's all I'm saying. Like the 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 Terminator version 
of this current <laughs> moment. When he comes back in time, he isn't like making a compelling speech at the State of the Union. Like that's not what Terminator does. He starts busting shit up. <laughs> right. So it's, we got it. So did what what Peter did that that gave you more? Because I know every time you know you ask, what are we supposed to be doing? You know, and then people kind of give you these answers that always kind of leave you a little wanting a little bit more. Did Peter start giving you something that you felt like, okay, we can maybe do something if things like this are being organized or, uh, you know, are getting ramped up? Yeah, so I do I, – I forget who was saying earlier that they wanted more specific direction, and I agree. I think, you know, that was episode one of this kind of line of thinking, and I'm looking forward to uh, episodes like the ones we did with um, – the one we did with – Oh Lord, have mercy! It's so late, and I'm my brain is so off. Are you the, you're the labor, the labor organizer everybody loves, and she. Oh, Chris Moss? No, no, no! It's a woman, white, forties uh, or fifties. Uh, her book is called like "It's Not Easy" or uh, "There's No Quick, No Shortcuts, No Shortcuts." The labor organ. Uh... You know, no shortcuts, lady. Someone in the chat's going to get it for me in a second. Someone in the chat. Jane, Jane McAlevey. Thank you, Tusker. Jane McAlevey, you know, specific conversations about what to do next. And I personally, I feel a lot more confident arguing about student debt because I've been doing it for a while and stuff. But I hope to get to a comfort zone where I feel more responsible being directive and do some stuff myself. And so I can speak from more of a place of authority than obviously I can now, but yeah, we're, we're about to do this guys. This is about to be climate summer. Yeah. No, it's about I to mean, be earth day. We're about to, let's, <laughs> let's, let's do something for earth day. When's earth day? 23rd. That's April, April 23rd. Okay. Uh, you guys, you guys want to protest? What want to hang out and protest together on earth day? Want to get arrested on earth day? Bad faith protest. <laughs> the bad faith protest. Okay. We're going to branch out, you know, the pod, get a little merch going. Save the earth. Stop. You told me, me that you need a little bit more on the Patreon subscription. I'm trying to get you some. You guys are you guys are helping me rebound a little bit this month. It's not it's it's where I want to be for the first half of the month, but I need to continue in the second half of the month to get us back to status quo before it drops off again at the end of the month. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I, I appreciate I I can see that some of you saw and heard that, or maybe they're just responding to the Rokana interview or some of the other big episodes we've had this week, but I appreciate you, Sylvester. We've I'm, gone... you know, I'm, I'm, on, I'm gonna keep on pushing for you. Um, I'll say I'll say this and close because this is this is a good place to close. Uh, and this is what I would I would say to Nina: with something like that happening, the best thing Nina can do, in my this is my opinion, but the mm-hmm. best thing it can do, the best thing any congressional candidate who claims to be on our side can do at this point is have the honest conversation with themselves that whatever legislation that I want to pass. I don't have the numbers to pass and I need to work with people to put on direct action. That's the mm. best thing I can do with my platform. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I think that uh, people would have appreciated that kind of um, self, kind of self-aware, honest answer. And um, maybe if not those candidates, other candidates will, will learn from what I think was really constructive advice that you were all giving and constructive feedback you were all giving. It was hard but you guys offered it pretty compassionately, and I was proud of you. I was proud of this audience for being respectful and kind of coming from a calling in rather than calling out I place. on the back, y'all. <laughs> Wait, I got a sound effect moment. for that. I got a sound effect for that. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, 
You know how much I appreciate you, Day. You know how much I appreciate you all. I want to remind everybody that you can make clips from these episodes and so I can push them on uh, social media and circulate them to the people um, and they can get a sense of what we're doing in these chats and the fun that we're having in these chats. Um, also remember, oh, what's going on right now? Oh, sorry. Also remember that you can subscribe to Bad Faith Podcast for an extra episode every month for five, uh, every week rather, $5 a month. Uh, www.patreon.com slash badfaithpodcast. If you don't have the resources to do so, I completely understand. You can go to YouTube find and subscribe the there. So find the resources. <laughs> so Make it happen. Okay. You can, we still appreciate your likes and subscribes and comments on YouTube. That gets us pretty far. And as always... Keep the faith and enjoy this thematic outro music. Yeah. Mm-hmm.